Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Mary Rose. Once again, we have reconvened weekly because we have no life and because the world sucks. Uh, so we're just going to drink our way through it and let you laugh at our idiocy, basically. Uh, Alina's in the house. You're right, Alina? Yes, sorry. I was try- trying to scramble there to unmute myself when you said hello. Well, so me and you are in the middle of recording 30 podcasts this week. Oh, we haven't had a row yet and it's Thursday night. No, we have not because we've been extra super nice to each other no matter how shitty the other one feels because we know exactly how shitty. Usually we've had like proper chucked our toys out of the pram by now and like had a rant at each other and we haven't so far. We're growing, my lovely. We're growing. Yeah, we are turning into an old married couple. Uh, Kate is joining us from Spain. Kate, is it still raining and snowing there? No, no, we're dry and sunny now, but it's freezing cold and windy. And we are finally locked down. Oh, you are um, locked down now? Sort of. The bars are still open, most places. Um, <laughs> but my town is, yeah, is more or less complete lockdown because we've got really, really bad cases of, of COVID. Um, so. But you, uh, good luck with okay. job interview that's coming up. So yeah, thank you. Um, Boom. Oh, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. I really want it. Fingers crossed indeed. Princess is here in his tiara. Have you taken it off yet? Well, strategically, but it's only when you go to work and it's sort of required, is what you're saying. Yeah, I, I think it. I think it just adds a bit of gravitas to uh, the role, really, and I think it's what the first Duchess would have wanted. I think you should wear it next time you have a conversation with the Duke because it'd be hilarious because you trump him because you're wearing a crown and he'd be like, "Oh, well, this changes things." <laughs> I think you're 100% right, and I'm definitely, definitely going to do that. Excellent. If we could have uh, some feedback on what the Duke of Wellington makes of it, it would be great. Uh, Holmes is with us. He's judging tonight. He never wants to see another film again after what you lot have put him through, because you've done your research, haven't you, and watched nigh on every single film that you're going to get moaned at. I think I've watched pretty much all of them. And also, if you look behind me, you'll notice there's no bacon fries on the wall either. So I've done this... This whole week, I picked a terrible week to give up pub snacks, to sort of paraphrase Airplane rather badly. (laughs) Did you just sit there stuffing junk food in your face and weeping after the first half hour of Shakespeare in Love? No, no, just water, just water. Just recycling tears, basically. Tears of water. (laughs) 
brilliant. Dorman's here. You're right, Dorman. Have you recovered? We told everybody you were in uh, hospital with RS8 last week because of the South Carolina bar snacks. Recovered? Best New Year's ever, guys. Thanks. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fine now. All is well. Well, I wouldn't say that. I've had to sit through my own choice for this film, but apart from that, all is well. Brilliant. We've got Charlie with us as well, who just keeps winning. <laughs> Confident this week. Oh, I'm back. Um, I am confident because my film is so terrible. But then I'm, I'm wondering, I'm seeing a few on the list that I've had a sneak peek of, and I think there might be some that can beat me. But I'm giving you a good run for your money. It is awful. There is some serious competition this week, isn't there? Uh, and your podcast is out today. You are Clark Gable and Carol Lombard podcast is doing very well. Zach and Marcus's podcast is out as well, and also doing very. You're like neck and neck at the moment for downloads. So, uh, mm-hmm. not that I'm putting you up against each other, and you still got a way to catch Boney, obviously, because this has been out a week already. You're right, dude. You've had a shave. I have. It's terrible. I'm freezing. Really, <laughs> my face is so cold. <laughs> <laughs> oh sigh Nikolai is with us uh, from near Copenhagen now because you've moved yes. everyone wants to do a house move in the middle of a pandemic with two children under it's five it's wonderful it's wonderful <laughs> but most importantly no. the gun safe has been moved yes it? that was the biggest worry yeah. to get that thing down a flight of stairs is no fun I like that you've managed to describe it without swearing for once as well. So. Yeah, <laughs> that's an improvement. Three gaps in the historical gun safe, so you need to go shopping. Yes, but um, yeah, money money's not not great right now when you just bought a house. No, it's a very nice looking house. It looks a lot bigger than where you were before. Yeah, I mean, all the previous podcasts we've done have had to do from the kitchen to not wake up the entire family. So, but like in your last office, you could basically see the fridge and the shower in the background <laughs> in the last place at the same time. <laughs> that is definitely an improvement. Okay, we have Beth with us, who's looking marginally more awake than last week. Yeah, just just a bit. Um, yeah, what are you doing? Probably- yeah, obviously, obviously, it's not been the best of weeks for me, so I am looking forward to you uh, all getting me a bit more uh, my normal self, really, because it's not been a great week, so I'm looking forward to plenty of laughs all round from this. Plenty of alcohol. Go and find some uh, sweeties as well. I've already done that. The chocolate's already been demolished. Um, I walked in the door from work, bang, gone. Clive, <laughs> <laughs> no porno lighting tonight. I know something's gone wrong with it. I had it on last night during a Zoom call, but tonight it. I'm very disappointed. I'm used to the, oh. the blue lighting behind. And also, after sitting through Clive's choice, he, if any week needed Clive's porn porno light, it's this week. Yeah. After the film he's made you uh, sit through, yeah. I'm guessing yeah. you never want to see another naked body in your life. Poor Kate googled the film title and got hit with some seriously horrific. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Kate, for suggesting you should watch okay. it with your mum. <laughs> yeah. uh, my mum wouldn't have minded, I don't think. But um, well, she's watched it really... up on our YouTube. That's it. No, no, no. I don't think so. Not that she's ever admitted. So have Kit with us. Kit, are you still hunkered down and living in a hotel? They haven't kicked you out yet. They haven't kicked me out, but I am escaping. I am looking forward to it because I've slowly grown a second chin, just on takeaways, sitting in this bloody hotel. So where are you going now? Uh, I'm going to the exciting world of Ocean Village in Southampton. Um, oh, brilliant. Just found slightly more more uh, yeah, long-term accommodation. Yeah, I was going to say, because I would just, if I was you, I think you should test, because I heard this week that um, you're not allowed to evict anybody 
by law in the UK right now during the pandemic. So you could just stop paying your bill and just sit in a Premier Inn. And I don't think they're legally allowed to throw you out. I could do that, but I'm not a dick. (laughs) (laughs) Well, James is with us as well. James is just propping up the bar tonight uh, because he's got other stuff to do as well. We've got Zach with us. Zach's waving. Hello, mate. How you doing? How's this week going? Yeah, not bad. I've had a few arguments with... um... Well, let's be quiet and call the washing online. Machine. No, no, not the yeah. washing machine this week. Uh, <laughs> oh, Zach, who think they understand military strategy and don't understand the principle that war isn't about having a fair fight um, and trying to get them to understand such basic concepts is an, an effective waste of a day, really. Oh, the life of a moderator on the internet. I'm tempted to say you asked for it. Chris uh, right. got a Dillingham shirt on. Bless you. Uh, what? One of them. <laughs> Did you just pull it out of the bin at the stadium after a game? <laughs> um, yeah, a few years ago. This... Yeah, they do. They're really expensive for considering what league we're in. Um, but yeah, I, I thought I'd put... after dressing up last week, I thought I'd slouch down a little bit and wear something, you know, lower division. Well, yeah, something sort of midway in between the mankini and a shirt and tie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's not German. Sorry. Yeah, outstanding. And we have a returning special guest judge tonight. Simon London's back with us. He wasn't put off last time. Either that or he was too drunk to remember how terrible yeah. it was. I, uh, I think it was the latter, actually. I did, um, I did when I finished talking to you guys, did kind of get up and then sort of stagger stagger through the rest of the house. No, I enjoyed it uh, immensely. And thank, thank you very much for inviting me back. This is brilliant. I, I got We got a message from you at about six saying, do I start drinking? Is this on? Because before I start getting shit faced, I just want clarification. So hopefully Simon will be judging tonight. And we are, of course, as promised, debating the worst ever historical film slash TV series, I guess. But a historical interpretation of something ever, ever, ever. We did stop people after a while picking military films because it was just starting to sound like the other one we did. So... so there may be more military films, but we purposely varied it up for you tonight. Uh, and it's supposed to be, it's got to be a film about something in history. It has to be a film about actual history uh, for it to qualify. But no one will listen because rules just don't matter to you lot. Um, and Holmes has tried to sit through most of these and nearly killed himself, I think, a fair few times. And uh, has now got serious beef with the likes of Ben Affleck. Gwyneth Paltrow, um, possibly Judy Dench, but she's only in it for five minutes. Yeah, it's, it's astonishing she won an Oscar for that as well. That was totally now you look at it, what kind of fucking slow year was it that they gave her? Even she looked, <laughs> I looked at the clip on YouTube and she looks baffled. She's like, are they on drugs? <laughs> but I, we'll come to this, I guess, when we hear about it. But the films that it was up against are astonishing. It's amazing that it won. I know. It's, yeah, mind you, we've we since learned that the Academy Awards are a sack of crap anyway. They, <laughs> they've given one out and then kicked everyone off the stage and changed their mind now, uh, which is uh, scraping the bottom of the barrel. But we're going to go to Alina first because she has to pop off to prepare for more podcasts. Alina? Yeah? What have you picked as the worst historical film? I mean, I think everyone knows this one is coming up. Well, yeah, because the funny thing is, is we've been so busy recording and prepping and, 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 and dealing with people that, to be honest, I didn't really have time to watch and prepare and everything else as everyone's going, oh, yeah, well, yeah, okay, well, you lot try and do our job. 
Um, so instead, I actually went back through one of our podcasts and um, chose the one, the only Braveheart. Yeah, it is a sack of historical crap, isn't it? I, I don't expect to be winning tonight. I really, I hope somebody else does because unfortunately I'm going to have to bugger off and start prepping for tomorrow. But um, yeah, I, I, to be honest, I'm going to list it off because I really don't have the time to sit there and argue. So if you're ready, judges, for a long list, are you ready? I, I am yeah. ready. Right. Yeah. William Wallace was not Braveheart. The timeline of the movie is completely wrong. Robert the Bruce did not betray William. Isabella was 13 and she did not fall in love with William Wallace. William Wallace was no commoner. William Wallace's death was actually way more brutal. At the time of William Wallace, kilts were not a thing. King Edward II was not a gay stereotype. (laughs) The Highlanders would not have worn blue faces or have hair thingamajigs right bagpipes were not banned William's father did not die during his childhood the battle of should I just keep continuing should I just yeah yeah keep going (laughs) the battle of Stirling Bridge is missing wait for it a bridge (laughs) the Scots never sacked York King William the first was not a pagan William's wife was not named, I don't even know how to pronounce her bloody name, Marion, Muron, whatever. The name is frigging wrong. The Irish and the Scottish did not join first forces at Falkirk. The lover of Edward II was not thrown out of a window by Edward I. There was no Uncle Argyle. There's no evidence of a fake Scottish summit. The English soldiers did not wear matching uniforms. And there was something to do with swords, but I forgot to write that one down. They don't have long swords. The big sword that everybody's got in that film, they didn't have them. Exactly. So, um, And this is before you've even got started on Mel Gibson's accent. Oh, wait for it. And um, the other one was, I completely forgot about this one. Um, So he is older, isn't he, in the film? He's actually supposed to be a lot younger, isn't he? Yeah, oh yeah, I said to you he was 20 years too old to be playing some fucking young upstart rebel in it. Yeah. Supposed to be. So basically what you're, what you're saying, is there anything left? Can we recall anything left about this film that may actually be accurate? There, do you know what it is? The, the, the production. It's filmed in Ireland. Okay, but the, the <laughs> it's whole not even is, Scotland in the film. They could just, just got a lot of people and just went, here you go. Let's make it historical. Do whatever you like. Fuck it up. We don't care. Well, it it seems to to me that they use, judges, I don't know if you agree, pretty much the bog standard method. I mean, there was no way we were getting through tonight without cussing Mel Gibson. Um, The bog standard method for a Mel Gibson historical film appears to be, I hate the English. Let's make them look bad. Throw some some shit at me. Holmes, is that how it works? I, I think so. I mean, firstly, you know, hats off. That's off to Alina because um, she said she didn't have time to prepare, but that's the most preparation she's done in months, I think. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think also, just to try and set the ground rules, when we finished at the end of last week, we said there's two elements to this. A, the history has to be bad, 
and B, the film itself has to be bad as well. They were the sort of guiding oh. principles, weren't they, that we agreed on last week? Uh, roughly, yeah. But ever, oh, do you know what? Ever since you lot nominated the best building ever as pubs, all of them, <laughs> uh, I don't think anyone cares about rules, but carry on. But, I mean, I, I take all those historical inaccuracies on board, and they are significant, but I've sort of a bit of me. I don't mind Braveheart. I've sat through it before. I don't mind, you know, the English being portrayed like they are. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not Scottish, but I'm fed, of, fed up of a load of posh twats ruling us from London, and I live in London. So, you know, I, can, I have a degree of sympathy with that. Um, I think Gibson films have aged quite badly, and I don't know if that's because his reputation and what people think of him has also taken a turn for the worst. But Because um, he's turned out to be an anti-Semitic wife beating Saddam Hussein lookalike. That's it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, did you take that off his LinkedIn profile? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. his Twitter profile. His, his agent just sent you that. But, I mean, compared to some of the ones I've sat through, I, I don't think it could be the worst historical film ever. Simon, what say you about Braveheart? Um, well, uh, so... I knew that uh, they had taken some poetic license, but I didn't realise <laughs> that actually the whole thing, the whole thing, was he really called William Warren? I, I've also written down, what about the cars? Were there, were there, <laughs> she didn't tell me the word cars in there either. Um, so uh, now that you've said, does it, fail, does it fail the litmus history test? Then obviously there's, as uh, Alina's pointed out, there's a few, a few discrepancies and a few falsehoods in there. But as a film and as an entertaining story, I think that you would, uh, people came out of that film punching the air uh, who, weren't, who weren't Scottish. People, for some reason, loved that film, the, the whole idea of telling a story. And I think there's a few films that you guys have chosen that actually do kind of pass that telling the story test. So, yeah, history-wise, it gets an F. Storytelling-wise, though, I think it gets a bit of a pass. Um, but obviously, the the massive handicap is Mel Gibson, who, as you said, Alex, what was it? An anti-Semitic wife-beating Saddam Hussein lookalike. Yeah, yeah. But but he's white, so he's still working in uh, Hollywood. Go, yeah. go, go figure. figure. <laughs> what a knob. Uh, just hold the press because. Um, John Jordan's just joined us live from the state of Georgia, not the People's Republic of Georgia, which some people in your state don't know the difference, we found out last week. All still in one piece, building isn't on fire? Well, first I'm working on uh, a, a, a passing a law over here that will establish a small city named Tbilisi so we yeah. can <laughs> uh, at least uh, at least minimize the confusion. Uh, yeah, yeah, everything is uh, still moving along here. Nothing to see here, folks. Um, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, the orange man behind the curtain. <laughs> Did you like my picture? I, I saw a picture of him screaming at a child, and I put it on Twitter with the caption, I'll give you £10 million if you let me use your phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He must that. be climbing the walls. It's like there's no, he's just like <laughs> screaming at the walls and no one can hear him. Well, the thing, the thing is, we have a lot of, uh, of history about Richard Nixon during the depths of the Watergate scandal. He, uh, he drank heavily. He would feel sorry for, for himself. He would start crying. Um, basically, uh, basically acted like, uh, Zach on the weekend. And, <laughs> he, um, 
he would, uh, but, but, and, and so we know a lot about his demeanor and there was a real, you know, discussion about whether he was unfit to hold office. We don't know what's going on inside the White House. For all I know, uh, Trump could be like putting on blue paint and screaming the word freedom and riding around in a tricycle and, or, or he could just be sitting there, uh, you know, just chilling in front of a game of, uh, of, of Halo 5. So we don't know. I did see a wonderful meme earlier on of Bill Clinton laughing and it just says impeach twice and you didn't even get a blowjob, which I thought was quite <laughs> uh, We will be back to you in due course to hear your choice of worst historical film. But let's go to Chris next. Chris, who somehow managed to have the Patriot not finish last in the best war film <laughs> because Das Boot ended up last. Nikolai's going to lose his shit. Look at him. Uh, Chris, what have you picked as the worst film, dare I ask? Well, I'm, I'm staying in my lane a little bit, as it is about um, ships. Um, however, there is only going to be one mention of German, so I'm halfway there. I'm going to do the 1997 release of Titanic, not the 1940s German version, which apparently is much better, <clears throat> if a bit pro- propagandist. Um, it, this may fail on the, it's, I, my, it, the fact that it's a bad film is a little bit tenuous, but I'm, the history-wise, there's loads of problems. I mean, I, I could st- I, I usually hate these people, but I'm going to be one of them now. Um, you can sit there and pick out every detail that's wrong with a movie, like uh, at one point Jack's using a filtered cigarette, or at one point someone's using a flashlight. Or the fact that they keep calling um, Molly Brown Molly Brown when she wasn't referred to as Molly until after she died. Um, but again, the producers and the writers did put in quite a lot of um, attention to detail for Titanic nerds like me. Um, they've actually got the conversation between the um, uh, tower, the uh, lookouts, and the off and uh, the bridge bang on correct. They've got the Strausses leaving to go and die together, and you know that, that's that's quite touching. But there are three really really big holes in this story. Um, of which I'm going to hang my, um, sink my ship on. Um, one the first the one, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, in fact, I'll start with that one first, uh, is the temperature of the water. Um, you've got Kate Winslet, bless her, who's not, who wasn't really good in that one, but she still did better than DiCaprio, wading around inside the ship, freezing cold water with absolutely no ill effects. This is the same temperature of water that everybody's dying in, in the water afterwards, and it's no problem. Are you basing um, how cold she is on the, the fact that her nipples don't go hard? I hadn't seen that. I hadn't noticed that, actually. <laughs> I'm surprised. I thought that, well, that was the first thing you'd have gone for, you deviant. Chris, Chris was going off to part of DiCaprio's packet instead. He took a different, a similar but different... <laughs> He's also wearing the wrong handcuffs the same at one point. Water. Also, on the, on the water point, Chris, and it, it is quite interesting, because right until the end, even when they're, they're both in the water and stuff, and everyone's in the water, you, you can't see their breath. And I was thinking, surely you'd be able to see their breath. And then right at the end, you can see their breath. So they're obviously cottoned onto it, but there's a slight continuity error there. It's because they were filming it in Baja, so they had to add the breath, and it cost a fortune because it's CGI. <laughs> uh, and and that, that's also why the water as it's inside the ship is clear, which it wouldn't be. You know, it's water from the middle of the North Atlantic. Um, also, that when people fall into the North Atlantic, you die of shock before you die of hypothermia. 
um, the suction of the ship going down doesn't suck any as many people down, and there's far too many people alive in the water when it hits there. I mean, yeah, it looks good, yeah, it's all dramatic, but it's it's bollocks, really. Um, <laughs> the next thing I was going to move on to is um, the fact that. Are they, are, oh, fair enough. She jumps over the rail and she goes to the back of the ship and she's going to throw herself off and you know get over yourself. Um, but they then spend the rest of the movie hanging around in each other's areas. You were strictly forbidden from crossing from your class into another class. This wasn't just because you know the rich didn't want to have poor people running around. It was for basic sanitation because if like, like we have now, if a pandemic, if someone is sick on the ship, you need to contain it. And the people who are most likely to be sick were the poor. Sorry, but it's true. Um, so Lord and Lady Bastard didn't want to get tuberculosis or anything from people, from some third class guy who was wandering around with some random 17 year old ginger girl. So she, he just wouldn't have been allowed to see her after that. And she wouldn't have been allowed to go and go, uh, play with the Irish stereotypes down on the, um, after hours. And the final thing that really, really got up my nose is the portrayal of, um, the officers. And the, in fact, the crew of Titanic, um, the main one being uh, the first officer, uh, William Master Murdoch, and the portrayal of him got so bad that the movie company had to make a donation to his local church to say sorry. Uh, the main thing being, pounds. was it fifty? I couldn't, I couldn't find how much, but yeah, they, they, which even then, considering how much money they made, they could have made it yeah. higher. I, no, I mean, James Cameron would have paid him fifteen hundred pounds to piss off, basically. Yeah. He probably found that in the back of the sofa because they showed this man, um, according to everyone, um, all the history of Titanic, the uh, off, uh, light Oller on one side of the ship and Murdoch and Wilde on the other side of the ship were working their asses off to try and get as many people off the ship as possible. There is no reason to then put in that, or, or even that Murdoch would have accepted a bribe from a passenger, let alone with banknotes that weren't issued to 1914, two years after the ship sank. <laughs> There is a rumour of an officer committing suicide. There's a couple of people mentioned it, but it's <clears> not <throat> it, it's not reliable. When There's you also say situ- officer, though, you have to imagine that a passenger's comprehension of an officer, if someone's in a suit with a hat, but that covers oh, purses, it covers exactly. They, they believe it could have been chief. Yeah, it's... They thought it, it could have been Chief Purser McElroy. Yeah. And actually, the, well, then mo- you go down to the fact that Wilde had recently been widowed and had four, yes. four or five kids at home and financial difficulties and stuff. Anyone's going to blow his brains out. Not that he did. It's most likely him. But, I mean, the, the other option is, knowing full well that they were going to go fall into freezing water, maybe a bullet would be quicker. It's another po- possibility. But Lightoller, was, who was uh, the second officer, was willing to... who was fully prepared to die... But he was going to go down with the ship, and he was very, very lucky to survive. He got caught on a grill, and a cloud of hot air blew him up to the surface. But he was the only one. I mean, the only person that is known to have fired a gun during the whole thing was uh, Fifth Officer Lowe, who fired his pistol down. It's actually in the movie with uh, show favourite Yoan Griffith firing um, his pistol to get people away from the crowd. It also show, sort of shows that people aren't being loaded in lifeboats. Well, that was on purpose. And this is, again, with the doors being locked and saying, oh, we're going to keep all the poor people downstairs. You can't have 2,000 people on the deck. It's basic health and safety. They'll just crush each other. So that what, they, <laughs> what they originally planned was that the lifeboats would go down and go around to the back of the ship where there were hatches, the boarding hatches, and they would get people off. 
Um, third officer Pittman took his lifeboat round to the back of the ship and they waited for 25 minutes and no one turned up because people were getting lost. And the other thing, and this is only a really small thing. They were probably, I can still, un- probably still dancing. They were, they were, they were very <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Someone broke out a violin and went, come on, guys. And, oh, um, oh. Um, uh, my final historical moan. Um, I can understand why they left the Californian out because that's a bit of a tenuous thing about whether whether the Californian was close enough. I'm not going to mention the German ship Frankfurt because that just makes the English look pedantic. And, but they left out the crucial point about the ice warning. The only ice warning you see in the film is the one that Captain Smith looks at and goes, ah, yeah, don't worry about it, we get these all the time. They left out the point that Marconi operators got the ice warning and put it to one side because they were too busy posting messages for Lord and Lady Bastard to Cape Race. They did film um, and they did film the Californian. But they left it out. Um, uh, I can understand why they left Californian out because there's a, there's a lot of Lordites out there who would say that... Um, it was unfair. They're like oh, the equivalent, them, but... um, Zach, of the We Love Napoleon Club, the Lordites. If you start cussing the Californian and Stanley Lord, you get weirdos and lunatics. Mm. I might do a thread on it, actually, for shits and giggles. Yeah, I might just start one on Twitter and pokes and crazies. Yeah, well, why not? It's better than the German ones I did recently. So, um, And as to why it's a bad film, it's, uh, it's three hours long. I actually managed to sh- shorten it down to an hour and a half by getting rid of that crappy romance bit. Cut that out. Let's do the sinking. It'd be, it's very much like um, the 1970s SOS Titanic. But the sinking in itself isn't too bad. I mean, it's a bit overly dramatic. Or you could go the love story and just ignore the fact they're on a boat. Just pick one or the other, James. It was far too long, far too boring. DiCaprio couldn't work, act his way out of a wet paper bag. I didn't really rate Kate Winslet. Um, and What if she'd uh, had a German accent? No, no. I, mean, I think I think the best person in it was David Warner um, for oh, just man. running around with a gun trying to shoot them. Alleged. Oh, yeah, it's my history hack highlight. One of the biggest highlights so far is us lot sitting there going, is there anyone alive out there? <laughs> uh, in Griffith when we were recording the Hornblower special. Oh, that was brilliant. That was brilliant. And getting him to do the kill anybody here. Me. Uh, but because you ignore <laughs> the love story, you also missed out things like the car that they're boffing in. Uh, was actually shipped dismantled. Yeah. So they would have been boffing just on a box, which is slightly <laughs> less romantic. Yeah, that's <laughs> but I, I remember when I was young, so. and used, used to get urges. I would have assembled a vehicle just to give me give myself the opportunity. <laughs> well, maybe they filmed that as well. Maybe they filmed a whole montage of him reassembling the Renault so that they could boff. To, to, to Irish music, like yeah. quick rose, we need to put this together. Diddly, 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 diddly. Yeah, it's a fiddle dee dee music. Storman, yeah. how insulted are you by uh, the scenes in third class? Insulted? Me? No, not at all. Um, I actually don't. I don't mind Titanic per se because I know nothing about the sinking, and it's a film that I've been forced to sit through several times. And as romantic films go, it's not the worst. Um, there's at least some death and gore at the end, is what you're saying. Yeah, and the, uh, I mean, the the dance scene in the the pleb tier class with the Irish jig is offensive, I guess. <laughs> but apart from that, I, I'm I'm fine with it. Simon, I don't think this is going to fail your test of yes, it may be his. I don't think it's historically that bad. I mean, you have to give James yeah. credit for the fact that he's the first person that rather than buying an old rust bucket and pretending it was Titanic, he actually just built the Titanic a fraction yeah. smaller than in reality. I mean, um, and it passed the entertainment test, didn't it? 
Yeah, you have to hand it to him. So James Cameron not only um, uh, went out in a submersible to go and look at the Titanic and um, worked with um, people to uh, do the, uh, what's it called? Uh, he made those animatics of how it would have sunk on the day and how it broke and how it turned around and everything else. But um, there was a case when they had done the early CGI and it's still quite the early days of CGI and they had the Titanic pointing the wrong way. Although they had the stun on the wrong side, didn't they? Yeah, but at Southampton Docks, if it had left, it would have basically gone into uh, South uh, Southampton. Um, So what he did, (laughs) so what he did was because it was so expensive, the CGI was so expensive as he had, uh, he flipped the the film and he had, all the signs in those, uh, when you see those exteriors, painted so that they were the mirror image. So everything, it was cheaper to do that with the art direction than um, redo the CGI. So I think he set out to be as um, as accurate as possible. And the things that are flagged up, I think it's just bizarre that he he kind of defamed that dead man when he kind of worked so hard to make everything else. But uh, he, yeah, the fact that he was sort of made, he was the one that was picked out to at least consider the bribe and then he was the one that shot himself as well. You're right. It's like you go to all that trouble. I mean, even in the act of he cast lookalikes, like the Strausses are dead ringers for people. Everyone he was casting had to be a dead ringer for the original person. Uh, and then you've got this whole thing of everybody knows what happened to Titanic, except obviously for a load of um, millennials who, uh, did you see that tweet, somebody going, oh my God, I just found out that that they've made, there's a film uh, that Titanic actually happened. A load of kids ha- didn't realise it was real. So um, you, I think you have to hand it to him to make a three hour film where everybody who goes to see it knows the ending. And it's still quite watchable. I think that's, that's pretty good. He did do his research there. Um, and um, I'll leave you with uh, a fact that I didn't know. I've just posted something in the chat, but something I didn't know. Uh, the drawing that Jack does of Kate Winslet, uh, James Cameron selflessly did that himself. And so, that is yeah. his hand doing the sketching, yeah, which uh, a lot of the pedants got very angry because of the continuity. Because if you look at him sketching, he has a blood blister on his thumb and Leonardo DiCaprio has not. And Leonardo DiCaprio used a hand double for the scene where she goes over the back of the ship and tries to kill herself because Leonardo DiCaprio has this weird obsession with his hands. He thinks they're too small and he hates them. He thinks he's got weird little pygmy hands. So he hires a hand double on every film to do the close handwork for him because he hates his hands. But credit to James Cameron. The, he oh, advanced, the plot of Zoolander? <laughs> he advanced the uh, study of Titanic. For but it has enabled, it did enable that company to pillage the wreck, though. Um, Titanic King. They're just stealing loads. It should be left alone. You know, right, there's... Yeah. They stole. Uh, they've got one of the Strauss, Mr. Strauss's Isidore Strauss's wedding ring on display. It's like he was you wearing say that. You say that, died. but then how? Be. What do you do? Do you raise artifacts now? Because I mean, the the entire wreck will consume itself in the next mm. thirty to forty years anyway. So, do we take it up or do we just leave it and let everything go? I don't know. Like some people would rather see the stuff in a museum. I don't. I don't think about i haven't thought about it to the point where i have an opinion but that's their argument isn't it yeah i i'd I'd argue there's nothing on there apart from apart from personal items 
that we haven't got already. I mean, the like the dinner plates they've rescued. It's just because they've got Titanic on them. It's just, I don't know. I just feel that you know that's someone's grave, and we should leave it be. Personally, we play um, the I know there's a very grey area between grave robbing and archaeology. Let's face it. If she hadn't have sunk, she would have hit a mining equilibrium. <laughs> Shut up, you misery. Well, Home, uh, what uh, say Olympic you didn't. about Titanic? Yeah, I, 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 I mean, it, it's pretty good. It looks good from all the money that's been spent on it. I mean, compared to some of the ones I sat, sat through, it wasn't a chore. I mean, a slight confession, because I had, you know, I was quite busy looking at all the others. I fast-forwarded through all of the modern bits with the old lady. Doesn't make any difference Fair enough. at all. And you save about 35 minutes. I mean, I think a lot of the things Chris identified, they, they were quite pedantic, and I understand with a historian yeah. head on that these things should be highlighted. But I take the view, and I, I see this with some sort of First World War films that have come out. It's quite easy to pick holes in it, but to most people who go and see the film, it doesn't make a shit of difference. And all you're doing is adding production costs to the film, which, you know. And they're then trying to appease experts who, let's face it, are never going to be appeased, and they're always going to find faults in it. So I think we can allow a bit of that to slip. I think... Massive historical factual errors are something that we should probably pick upon, but the minor stuff I think we can live with. I think the other thing, and you picked up on it, is I don't think they needed to do the lock door thing three times. That added about another 20 minutes onto it, as far as I can see. Yeah. Got to make the English look better. This is true, yeah. Mel Gibson must have been on the research team. Yeah, even 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 like the lower class stewards have got high, a really posh English accents. Like, don't worry, miss, come with me, I'll get you out of here. Like, where did you go to Eton or something? <laughs> Everyone in Belfast sounds think, like that. Chris, we need to send you another <laughs> bottle of rum. You get angry when there's no rum in the house. All right, let's go to let's go to Beth. You have actually picked a real stinker. I don't think anyone liked this one. Yeah, well, I was. I was really, really struggling for this one because everyone was picking really, really good options and I was like, nothing I pick will be good enough. And then I seem to have pulled it out of the hat. Um, so the film that I chose to go with, which considering that this room knows how much I love Shakespeare and romance, should come as quite a surprise to some people. Um, but I don't think it can be denied, even by myself, <clears throat> that Shakespearean Love is a truly awful film. And in fact, I think it's the worst historical movie of all time. First things first, that I must just have to say that I know that I'm in a room of people who do not like Shakespeare, as has been repeatedly pointed out. But regardless of whether you not you think you think he was a good writer, a great writer, the best of all time, he has completely done a disservice in this film. He is completely reduced to some country bumpkin, which, I mean, yes, he is, but he did, he's so much more than, than that. Um, some of the, the, f- the first thing that I think about this film, the, the script itself is just so shockingly bad. I picked up a selection of one of the, some of the lines in a scene he says very on in the beginning where he visits the apothecary. He almost is like some sort of psychiatrist, Tudor psychiatrist, which is really a bit of a, strange idea but he's like lamenting about the fact that he can't finish his latest work and the lines I wrote are just they're just so cringe worthy like they're so bad he says I have lost my gift it is if my quill is broken as if the organ of my imagination is dried up 
as if the proud tower of my genius in the, is collapsed. It's like trying to pick a lock with a wet herring. I mean, for goodness sake, that, that is just some shocking, shocking writing. There's no thought there. There's no finesse to it. He, he's everything that they say, you know, it's all woe is me and the overdramatic. I mean, he blames the fact as well in this scene with the psychiatrist that the fact that his, his impetus, impotency in writing and in the bed, he blames the fact um, on his poor old wife who is left up in Stratford, Anne Hathaway, and the fact that they had children, you know, and she was, you know, a little bit preoccupied with, you know, rearing their children than just wanting to be bonked by him. Not only that, we ha- we see as well, I think, in one of the very first scenes that we see Gwyneth Paltrow's character, we see her inspiration for future endeavours. So we know that she was thinking of uh, the company Goop in the 90s. You can see her cleaning her teeth with just a little stick. And I was like, I wonder if that's where she had her, you know, her ideas for natural, uh, natural whatevers and whatnot. I can't even. That was probably think. her lunch. Yeah, well, that as well. <laughs> We'll eat this stick of weightless bark. Um, maybe that, maybe there's a deleted scene where she was trying to clean her downstairs in the dark, and that led to the. Well, alternative. Hopefully, the teeth first. Well, the teeth first, and yeah. Ooh, ooh, blah, right. Blah. So, and some of the lines again, the script as well. There's the bit where after they have where William Shakespeare and Viola have sex for the first time. And she says something along the lines of, she said, I would not have thought it because her character is so interested in plays and poetry. And she said, I would not have thought it. There is something better than a play, even your play. Uh, Oh no, that's just, Oh goodness me. I mean, I do like the idea, the line of what, um, Ben Affleck's character says to William Shakespeare, where he just says, you're a Warwickshire shithouse, which I really, I did enjoy that. I did laugh when I heard that. But it just does a complete disservice to to, to the whole concept of, of Shakespeare. You know, they are great feats of work, and I know that's a ridiculous Possibly thing Possibly done by say. someone else, but that's not what the conversation is tonight. That's not what the conversation is. <laughs> um, but it completely does that. And on top of all of this, the, the awful script writing. I'm not a Tudor historian, so I'm not certain about the costumes, but I'm sure they're ridiculous for the time. But how many brilliant actors are in this film and completely are just like, it's just completely overwhelming. You've got Judy Dench, you've got Simon Callow, Colin Firth, Imelda Staunton, even Ben Affleck, as I'm sure it's going to be mentioned on a little bit later as well. And Jeffrey Rush. Jeffrey Rush, who is a brilliant actor in many, many films, and he's utterly re- reduced to an utterly ridiculous comedic sidekick, like a like a Baldrick kind of character. He's just, oh, tripping over this. Oh, it's just absolutely ridiculous. Not to forget, of course, that there are so many historical inaccuracies. Um, I, re- I re- was reading up to make sure I'd got all my notes together, and it did say, one of the uh, producers uh, did say that the film is not constrained by worries about literary or historical accuracy. I mean, if one of the producers is saying that, you know where it's headed, really. So things like the whole point, one of the points of the film is that Viola's going to get married to Wessex and they're going to go to Virginia and his tobacco plantations, which didn't actually exist. The colony of Virginia did not actually exist at that time. 
the House of Wessex, as it is historically, died out sometime after 1125, so 400 years before the film set. Queen Elizabeth I, played by, of course, the, the diamond that is Judy Dench, never pub- never entered a public theatre to our, to our knowledge, which she does in this film. And the suggestion is that Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet immediately followed by Twelfth Night, when he wrote ten other plays in between that in the, over the course of six years. And, you know, it's just, it's just absolutely ridiculous. And then, of course, on top of all of this, it wins best film at the, at the Oscars when there's films like Saving Private Ryan, Life is Beautiful, which is a fantastic film. And we know that anyone who is, it's about how much money you've got if you win the best picture. It's if you, who can shout the loudest about their film. Or if your producer's a sex offender. Well, that, that was my next point with, uh, Mr. Sex Pest himself, Harvey Weinstein. You know, he, he was obviously, we all know, we don't need to really discuss what he's done since then because we know what's happened. But he, uh, obviously people have tried to distance themselves from him in relation to, to the film, but he was, you know, he used his power in lots of different ways. And if you go back now in, in, in a poll in 2015, Academy members indicated that given a second chance, they would award the Oscar for that year to Saving Private Ryan and not Shakespeare in Love. Because of the power that he held, he strong armed, you know, the big, you know, it was Gwyneth Paltrow's big break into like the Hollywood films, strong armed these people, these actors into an unprecedented, you know, level of press and doing interviews for months and months and months. So it's all really just very, very unpleasant all round. And I just, it's just shockingly bad, I don't think is any other way I can say it. It's just bad. It's no upstart crow, is it? Definitely not. Uh, um, uh, The much better film, as well as um, for anyone who hasn't watched it, is Bill, which is a children's film made by the people who did Horrible Histories. And it's the best Shakespeare film ever. (laughs) (laughs) Holmes, what did you make of this? Well, my my hopes weren't high because I I don't really like the Tudors or Shakespeare. But I, I remember watching it when it first came out and... I didn't think it was great, but I didn't think it was that bad. So I re-watched it this week, and I thought it was terrible. I thought it was dreary. I thought it was far too pleased with itself. Um, I was intrigued to see that it categorised itself as a comedy, which was slightly odd, unless it was just comparing itself to Shakespeare's jokes, which we all know are are massively overrated. Um, And also, I mean, you mentioned the pictures that it lost to, but one of the others was Elizabeth, which is a far better film about exactly the same time period. It's... um, yeah, it's astonishing. I thought it was really, really dreary, tiresome to the point because I knew I had finished. I started to get angrier and angrier as it went on. With Beth for making you watch it. Yeah, I mean it was cumulative with a cumulative effort on all of your behalves, to be honest. <laughs> Simon, what do you all, make of uh, Shakespeare? All your houses. So this <laughs> is an interesting one. It's an interesting one because. Um, yeah, if we go with my litmus test, if you look at Saving Private Ryan, Saving Private Ryan is um, a work of pure genius. That opening 20 minutes, I see Matt shaking his head, but that opening 20 minutes, 25 minutes on um, uh, the yeah. Gino Amaha Sword Beaches, I've never seen anything like it. And even now, it's still, it still is incredible to watch that opening scene, I find. 
Um, I think but, Matt's shaking thought, his head because uh, that's not what anyone on those beaches saw on that day either. But as a piece of cinema, it is acceptable. Okay, yeah. I mean, it, was, it was one of my choices for tonight, actually. Okay. <laughs> As a piece of cinema, though, that is uh, visceral and it's still very emotive and it's an incredible piece of cinema. And then the actual story itself, Saving Private Ryan, I mean, it's it's really kind of a, a series of vignettes, isn't it? It's sort of just a, a few scenes sort of stitched together. And I'm not, I, I'm always really amazed when I watch the film how the story doesn't really hold up, but it's beautifully shot. Technically, it's a great film. Shakespeare in Love, when it came out, it was still kind of riding that... I mean, on, on Rotten Tomatoes, it still has a, a 92 rating on Rotten Tomatoes. The people who like it absolutely love it. And one of the reasons I think is at the time, uh, England was really, well, the UK was really pleased with itself of making these sorts of um, quite smug, kitsch, um, kind of Richard Curtis, bollocks, fuck it. It's just, all, you know, however, Shakespeare in Love does take that central conceit of a of a Shakespeare play quite cleverly and weaves it into whatever you may think of Shakespeare. It is taking um, quite a lot of back references to Shakespeare itself and weaving it into that script. And I think that the script is pretty good. Sorry, Simon. Though, do, you, do you not? Sorry. Do you not, do you not think? Because I had I watched it when it came out. And I hadn't watched it again until now. And I didn't have, I didn't think it was brilliant, but I, I was almost neutral about it. But watching it again, I just think it's terrible. Do you think that the reason that the ratings are holding up because people haven't watched it for years and also it, it hasn't held up in the, over the course of time? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think that we kind of find that comment. I think even sort of looking at films like Four Weddings and Notting Hill now that we don't find them as. Oh. I, I mean, we, we find we don't find them. I think that I find all of those quite dreary and the humour too pleased with itself. And I think I went along and saw this at the time. I have never seen Shakespeare in Love again, and I have never wanted to. And there was nothing about it that kind of gripped me. But at the time, I thought, oh, I like the way they've done that with the Shakespeare players and done X, Y, and Z. As a piece of storytelling, it was trying to mirror the star-crossed lovers bit and everything else. And um, I don't think. Um, you know, historically, I don't think it was trying to be anything historically. The weird thing about it, Judy Dench, up until then, Jack Valance, I think, had won an Oscar for saying the least amount of dialogue in a film, Shane, and then Judy Dench comes along and uh, tops him with um, that. And also, uh, Prince Edward was so enamoured with the idea of being Colin Firth, he was going to be the Duke of Cambridge, but he asked if he could be the Earl of Wessex instead. So just for that alone, um, it's going to get a thumbs down from me. Also, just to clarify, Beth, I mean, the whole thing is fiction, isn't it? The actual story itself, the yeah. overarching plot. Yeah, there isn't any in suggestion that she is a real woman and that he did have this relationship with her. And, you know, there's just, there's, there's no, it's just, it's just, it's just no. no Two things. No. A better film, I think, is anonymous about um, who wrote, uh, who wrote Shakespeare plays. And I have a candle that smells like Gwyneth Paltrow's fanny. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what is this about her orgasm candles? I've missed this. This has completely passed me by. <laughs> she released the candle and the the sort of title, the name of the candle was This Smells Like My Vagina. Nice. Yeah. I mean, this it is a smell of tuna because that would be hilarious. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, it's something for you and Alina to, to think about for History Hack merchandise, isn't it? Oh, brand <laughs> <candles>. <laughs>
Oh, right. Okay. Let's go to, I'll tell you what, let's go, let's break for drinks because I have no gin and tonic and this is not a good thing. So we'll be right back after this. Okay. We're back. Uh, and let's go to, who should we go to next? Let's go to Kate. Okay. Can you hear me now? My, can, I mean, yeah. Great. Kate um, something so, well prepared for us. What have you got tonight? <laughs> Well, I um, I'm pleased to say that I haven't seen more than one or two of the films that we're mentioning this evening. Um, so I'm quite proud of that. Although several films, series, and and whatnot that have come up in conversation recently, um, which I've really enjoyed, you've all described with some disdain to say the least. One is actually a contender this evening, Alex, <laughs> and another. <laughs> oh, you wait till I get and started. And another is a recently released series which you all hated. This and the fact that I missed the rules last week, I was probably asleep or drunk, prompted me to consider the criteria for a film to be decent or shit, and to wonder as to the difference between us. You're all, or mostly, historians. I am not. I suppose historians are naturally inclined to be more concerned with factuality. I, again, am not. I sit down and watch a film simply to be entertained. A movie needs a good story and likeable characters. One must want to keep watching and enjoy what one sees. Even movies which are historically terrible can be wonderfully entertaining. If I want factual and historically accurate, I'll watch a documentary. Thank you. The film I've chosen, however, is neither accurate nor entertaining. I'm a fan of Jane Austen. I love her novels, with the exception of Emma. I can't stand Emma. In the 1995 film version of Sense and Sensibility with Alan Rickman, Kate Winslet, Hugh Grant and Emma Thompson is wonderful. That and the BBC adaptation of Pride and Prejudice are both masterpieces. I've lost count of how many times I've watched Colin Firth emerge from the lake, soaked to the skin, dark and brooding, haughty and disdainful. Hmm. Sorry, sorry, where were we? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right, Jane, Jane Austen, Jane Austen. OK, Pride and Prejudice, the movie. What were they thinking when in 2005 they decided to make the most abysmal, excruciating period drama, no film, I've ever suffered? The lovely wolfhound at the beginning is probably one of the more accomplished actors, except Tom Hollander, who I adore and therefore love the film even more for casting him as the hateful Mr Collins. I'm also very fond of the usually excellent Matthew McFadden, who frankly seems embarrassed to be there and is wooden and expressionless far beyond that which is necessary to portray the aloof Mr Darcy. Jane, Dame Judi Dench, who should be wonderful as Lady Catherine, rather looks like she had a part in another production and accidentally walked through the set by mistake, ending up being cursed into some extremely poor improv. Brenda Bledin, as Mrs Bennet, is neither memorable, noteworthy, nor ridiculous enough. And Donald Sutherland, as Mr Bennet, is creepy and icky. I like the Mr Bennet we meet in the book and in the BBC adaptation. He offers several humorous interludes, but in this film, I keep expecting him to reveal himself as a serial killer or a paedophile. And please, for the love of God, will somebody get the man a razor? Why do all the men have two days stubble? They look like they couldn't be bothered. I wonder, were hair and makeup hats sponsored by Brill Cream? Because like their father, the Bennett daughters, with the exception of Jane, all look sweaty and greasy. Did they run out of hairpins after Jane, so decided to stick their awful fringes flat to their awful foreheads? The role of Elizabeth Bennet, one of the greatest and most coveted female roles, is several of Darcy's enormous country estates beyond poor Kira's limited range of pouts, grimaces and blank, confused looks. 
don't get me wrong, I like Kira Knightley. I love pirates, but she's worse than disappointing in this. Jane seems as smart and witty as Elizabeth, which she shouldn't be, according to the novel. She's shy, an introvert. But at least the two eldest Bennet girls are attractive, like described in the book. The other three sisters are nothing of the sort. Mary, who is supposed to be the only Solomon plain one of the sisters, is quite frankly ugly and not nearly sanctimonious enough to be an accurate portrayal of the character. While the other two are just annoying and unfortunate looking, they are neither well cast nor well portrayed. I'm not sure how they've managed to take three attractive actresses and make them look so positively hideous. Their costumes are scruffy and dishevelled, or at best boring and dull. At least half the characters look like peasants. Speaking of peasants, there's the Bennett's home. This film portrays it as some sort of squalid farm. They seem to live in an actual pigsty, rather than the landed estate described in, as a small park by Lady Catherine. There is at least a wilderness, a copse, alongside a paddock, a gravel walk and a front lawn. We see nothing of this in the film. The house itself is admired for its lovely hall and dining room and furniture, which is much praised. In addition to the hall and dining room, there's a breakfast room, sitting room, drawing room, library. Mrs. Bennett has a dressing room. There were master's chambers, guest rooms, nursery, another dressing room, at least three bedrooms for the girls. They are no, by no means so destitute that Lizzie and Jane would need to share a bed like they do in the film. Longbourn House is not a shabby little cottage. Yet the film shows it as pokey, scruffy, dilapidated, tired and unkept. Any self-respecting family would be horrified at the state of it. No wonder Mr Darcy looks so pained whenever he's there. Then there's a famous wet shirt scene, or rather lack of it. This movie chooses to show Kira running for a heavy shower to take refuge behind some huge pillars looking across the lake. Great location, the only one in the film only to be surprised by Mr Darcy when he pops out from behind one of the pillars. Was he following her or lying in wait? It's a bit stalkerish. He then proceeds to declare his undying love in robotic monotone, as if he's reading from the script for the first time. The next time he professes his love, it is rather better received, but he just looks bored out of his mind. The film's rendition of Mr Bingley must be the most unattractive version ever imagined. He's neither sensible nor good-humoured. He has nothing of the happy manners, ease and perfect good breeding that Jane is so attracted by in the novel. Rather, he behaves like a half-witted, annoying delinquent, a toddler on too much sugar. He is a bizarre caricature of the kind of gentleman he might be. He laughs like a demented seal and walks with his hair. Speaking of hair, or rather foreheads, poor Tom Hollander. I feel so sorry for him. It's ridiculous. Most of the time, he looks like he's struggling not to laugh at the absurdity of it all. He deserves an Oscar just for making it through the line, what excellent boiled potatoes. It's many years since I've had such an exemplary vegetable. The acting is dubious. The costume's dishevelled. The casting is further off the mark than Diana Ross's penalty at the 94 World Cup. And by the end of the film, everyone seems desperate just to get it over with as soon as possible. Sadly, this film is abysmal beyond repair. Even the wonderful Dame Judi Dench cannot rescue this insult to literary history and filmmakers worldwide. How on earth did they manage to take such a wonderful story, one of the best love stories ever, and fuck it up so monumentally? It is pretty dire. I'm not going to lie. Simon, are you a fan? No, I don't like the film. Um, interesting, though, uh, Joe Wright, who did it, then went on to do Atonement and Darkest Hour. He loves his period dramas, and um, I like both those films. So I think uh, uh, So it's amazing that he had such good source material and then came up with this. 
it's only the second time uh, that it's been filmed, Pride and Prejudice, uh, been made into a film. I think this was only the second film. However, it's obviously been on TV a few times and everything else. I um, I don't really like the film and historically, so it doesn't really do it doesn't really do anything for me uh, historically. What I do think it is quite interesting though is that they wanted to make a film. Thank you. I'm getting. I'm getting. <laughs> thank you. Uh, that they wanted to make a film um, uh, of something that had been burned into the public consciousness because of Colin Firth and because of the um, uh, Jennifer Eel. I think so. I admire his bravery doing that, but I don't think he pulled it off, and I don't think this is a great film. Holmes, you didn't like it either, did you? I, I, again, it won't be the first, the last time I say this tonight. I just thought it was really, really dreary. You know, I mean, there's a mm. number of films tonight that fall into this genre, and I'll be repeating probably the same for the next one as well. But, you know, it looks quite good. They've obviously chucked a load of money at it, but they forgot to work on the script, really. I mean, I um, I watched it with my wife, because she, she hadn't seen it either. And she said, it's terrible. And I said, and she liked the book. And she said, they've just taken... They've missed out the wrong bits of the book. So you're completely yeah, lacking yeah. in context for the rest of it. And that's why you don't really understand what's going on. And that's why it's quite boring. Um, I mean, the most exciting bit for me was when I thought they went past a First World War memorial and there was a continuity error. But I paused it for about 10 <laughs> minutes, but the resolution wasn't good enough for me to be able to tell whether, whether it was a First World War memorial or not. But yeah, I, I thought it was. <laughs> dreary beyond belief actually and the other thing I noticed that Kate pointed out was that all the women in it looked like they had really dirty hair even the posh ones yeah oh they were disgusting they looked sweaty and greasy and horrible do you know what I saw similarities between this and Shakespeare in Love though in that they had a female up-and-coming star that they wanted to put in front of a film i.e Keira Knightley or Gwyneth Paltrow at these given times and what they failed to do when thinking we need to get them out in front and in a leading role and make loads of money out of this was the fact that the vehicles they were using to drive them there were shit. <laughs> they were terrible films with terrible yeah. scripts and terrible plots and that it didn't matter who you threw in them, they couldn't save it. In both of these, not even Judy Dench can save them. Yeah, I mean, the thing is... This film had all of the right ingredients. It had a great cast. It should have had a great script from, from the book. The other adaptations have done. It had all the potential. It had all the right ingredients. And still, they managed to just really fuck it up. It was, wasn't long enough either. It was only 10 years after Jennifer Ely and Colin Firth completely bossed it. Uh, you need to see people were further... 10 years to forget that before you went about making yeah. a new version. But the BBC adaptation had six hours. They yeah. had six hours to use and to take the book and to develop the characters to try and condense that into less than two hours for a Hollywood film. They were setting themselves up to lose from the very beginning. That's, that's like any mm-hmm. film though, isn't it? Any film that's based off a book because they've only got two hours. We all say if you anyone who's a fan of a book series that's been turned into a film except for i can think of off the top of my head one exception probably lord of the rings because they're all five hours long lord of the rings but also like i mean again when i was a teenager like the hunger games were really big books they turned them into films and actually the films are really 
good compared to what's in the books. We but, just won't go anywhere and saying that the books were ripped off from Japanese books and are literally a plot for plot theft of someone else's work. But yeah. And the third one was awful. <laughs> I think the difference between Shakespeare in Love and Pride and Prejudice for me is that when I was watching Shakespeare in Love, it was dreary and I was getting irritated at the same time, whereas this one was just dreary, really. It's the kind of vibe, the kind of sunsetty vibe that they've tried to put over the whole thing and the natural look, it just like you say, it just looks boring, dull, and they all look dirty and it doesn't work. Yeah. Right. And they did pick all the wrong bits as well. They, picked, they they focused on all the wrong things and left out all the important bits. Yeah. It's and the not... casting was crap as well. Yeah, it's like it's not necessarily that the people in them are bad, but they're not right for the roles that they're playing. No, not at all. I love Matthew McFadden, but he is not Mr. Darcy. No way. No. Tom Holland are the same. He's he's great, but mm, no. And Rupert mm. Friend isn't Mr. Wickham either. Yeah. No, he's he's great and he's he's handsome and everything that a man should be, but no. Mm-mm. No. Yuck. No, he's not Mr. Wickham. Yuck is the consensus, isn't it? Well done, Kate. <laughs> Uh, let's go to let's go to something completely different because we've done a few romancy ones now. So let's go to something that has absolutely fuck all romance in it at all and go to Matt because Matt's gone with American football. Yeah, I've, I've done this properly again. I've prepared, which means Charlie's going to win again. Um, <laughs> but I... I don't have my sound effects this week. <laughs> um. So so yes so. I've, I've done this a little bit, Aris, about face, because I've chosen a good film which has got bad history in it. So in 2004, Peter Berg adapted his cousin's book, Friday Night Lights, for the big screen. Gus Bissinger's book followed the Odessa Permian Panthers high school football team through the 1988 Texas high school 5A season. Bissinger's book looked at, in depth at a town fixated on a high school team of 17-year-olds who have the weight of everybody's expectation on them to go to state. Bissinger's book looked at race and the issues of a still semi-segregated town and the use of black players in Odessa Permian's team while the high school was still predominantly white. The book is a fascinating point-in-time look that didn't go down well in Odessa when it was released. Peter Berg's film, on the whole, is pretty good. Billy Bob Thornton is coach Gary Gaines, and you've got great turns by the likes of Garrett Hedlund, Lucas Black, Derek Luke, and Jay Hernandez as the star players. In the film, we follow the Panthers through preseason two-a-days in the heat and the expectation of going to state. Things go wrong in the first game when their star player, Booby Miles, gets hurt, and the whole setup has to change. The players need to step up, come together as a team, and fight their way to the final. It is, to a large degree, cookie-cutter American sports film. But the characterization and the direction is superb, and overall the film in itself, within its genre, is fun, if very male watch. So why am I saying this should be considered as one of the worst on-screen historical crimes? It's because how the villains of the piece are shown. The 1988 season was dominated by the inner-city Dallas team, the Carter Cowboys. This team was incredible. Their defensive line were posting NFL-level numbers, and they were crushing. If you dreamt of a Texas 5A state championship in 1988, you would have to beat Carter. So, in reality, the Panthers and Carter met in the semifinal, but in the film, it's got to be the final. The real game was played in soaking wet conditions where the ball was like a greased pig. It was a low-scoring defensive game that Carter got ahead of and ground out for the win. 
In the film, it is a classic high-scoring movie game, come from behind, one-inch loss sort of thing for the Permian Panthers. Carter wins state, the Panthers rebuild and go undefeated next year, fade to black, roll the credits, and here's me complaining about a movie that's actually kind of good. But here we go. Dallas Carter was a middle-class high school in a predominantly black part of Dallas. The team were made up of sons of doctors, professionals, and preachers. They were big, and they played the game hard, but they were a clean team because they were a lot better than everybody else. The team was caught up in a, in a school grading controversy after the principal had implemented a, an improvement program to get the school's grades up. One of the math teachers didn't like it and leaked the grades to the press. The star running back was declared ineligible, and it frankly all kicked off. Games were reshared at the last moment, and basically things were done to try to get Carter thrown out. In the film, the big final is the main set piece of the whole thing. The Panthers run out at the Astrodome. It's huge. It's full of people. Everybody's going nuts. The camera's spinning around the quarterback. And then come Carter. The only way to describe this in radio form is to ask you to imagine an NWA video from back in the day, but then cast it with Ronald Reagan's Nightmares. I mean, these guys and the cheerleaders that strut out throwing gang sides, wearing Crip Blue, even though they're in Dallas and not South Central LA, they look like a bunch of gangbangers that failed the central casting audition for gangbangers. The game starts and Carter gets ahead on the scoreboard by playing dirty, kicking helmets into players' faces and being helped by black officials on the officiating team. Yes, they're big and fast, and to make sure we know that, there's a scene where one of the Panthers players says to the coach, wow, they're big and fast. It's not exactly great scripting, but it does the point. But this is the sequence that I want to look at tonight and why it angers me. We have some shocking films tonight, and there's a couple I will vote for very vehemently coming up in a bit when it looks at racist America. Friday Night Lights is very different because it briefly shows you something that un Conscious, your unconscious bias will reinforce the expectation of that's generally low of young black inner city youths in America. So let's look at Carter and understand why Peter Berg thought he could get away with what he did. Now this team of 60 players, let's break it down. 28 of them signed Division I full scholarships to major U.S. universities. Eight of those would go on to play pro ball. Three went to the NFL, including Giants legend Jesse Armstead. Ten would become coaches and teachers. Nine would enter local state and um, local state and civil service jobs. Two would see their, pun their sons play for the team. When this team played whiter teams, they had batteries thrown at them. With the grading argument still going through the courts, there were signs posted around their training ground and in the matches that read dumb N-words. These are 16 and 17-year-old kids. When you Google the film or you read Gus Bissinger's book, what happened with Dallas Carter is why Berg has the ammo to show Carter as he did. Because after Carter wins state, there was a string of armed robberies of local businesses with tens of thousands of dollars stolen. It turns out that there was a gambling culture within the school, coupled with player entitlement and the youthful desire to have the right bling, the right Jordans. These kids started holding up shops. Within the group that did it were six players who had signed Division I letters of intent, one who'd famously signed while in his mum's hot tub. Arrested, charged and convicted, 
The judge made examples of the six players, giving them sentences for between 14 and 20 years each. After this, the funding that was being used to fight the grade, the grade case was dried up. The grades were ruled inadmissible. Carter was deemed to have fielded an ineligible player, and they were stripped of their state title. But Matt, they were stick-up men. Why not show them as thugs? I hear your racist uncle shouting from the other room. Well, because in a country where on, on an average of three years after an offender's release, two of the three people are rearrested. Re Sorry, let's do that again. In the United States, on average, within three years of, of an offender's release, two out of three will be rearrested, and more than 50% of that will be incarcerated again. Now, of these six who served their sentences and were released for good behavior, not a single one of them ever reoffended. They got college degrees, and at least one of them has gone back to work at Carter as a mentor for the team. To this day, they all hold their hands up to admit to what they've done, and they look at their teammate, Jesse Armstead, and they know the opportunity that they threw away. Yet the entire team are remembered as gangbangers because P Peter Berg wanted his villains to close out his movie. Artistic choices within a narrative are as important as the narrative itself. In Friday Night Lights, they choose to play the stereo card and double down on it hard. The book doesn't do this. The TV series that spawned from the film spent two seasons looking in depth at race, and in doing so, gave Michael B. Jordan and Journey Smollett their breakout roles. It's easy to point out flaws in bad films. It's harder to hold up the ones you like to a critical eye. Friday Night Lights currently has 82% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, and I do like it as a film. But you're left with an impression that does nothing but reinforce a confirmation bias we, as a white viewer, may rail against, but know it exists nonetheless. One artistic choice can leave a lasting impression. The Panthers-Cowboy final in Friday Night Lights is a by-the-numbers American football conclusion of a good, a good adaptation of a good book. But throughout all of that, it leaves a very bitter taste when you realise just what the true story was. Well done. Holmes, what did you make of this? Well, I didn't obviously have any idea of the, the, the backstory that mm. Matt has elegantly told us. But, I mean, the only notes that I wrote were, and I'll read them out, True story, comma, Texas 1988. Uh, is this a history film? They're the only notes I made while I was watching it. Um, I have to say, I thought it was all right. It took a while to grab my interest because it's American football and also it's college sports, which we don't really have over here, apart from the boat race. And we know how shit that is. So, um, um, but I have to say, by the, by the end of it, I was quite gripped and actually I thought we would have the textbook American ending where they would make the final touchdown even though there was only like one and a half seconds to go and the play before that seemed to take up eight seconds um, um, so I sort of thought it was all right but I just need to try and sort of take on board the other points Matt has just made that I had no idea about. Simon how icky do you feel after hearing what Matt's had to say? feel exactly the same as Andrew because I like this film and also one of the reasons that I remember it is because I remember watching it going oh no it's one second how are they going to make them win with one second and then they don't and so it kind of that felt real and I sort of was really I remember at the time going that's pretty cool that they told that I was not aware of all the other stuff though what is interesting you saying that um and I knew it became a um, 
I knew it became a TV series, which I didn't watch, but you saying that that was tackled within the TV series um, about uh, the Dallas Carter t- film. Sorry, they, the Dallas they, 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 they discussed the race issue. So the other half of the white town, they move, they move the focus over to the poor side of town. So the yeah. last two seasons are in, in, in this other high school. So in some ways, you've got something here that's a great film, not a great film, it's an entertaining film. It's a film that I like, I've, I've, and I've seen it a couple of times. An entertaining film, and then also people like yourselves felt suitably moved by it to say there's a whole other story here, and they managed to get that out as a TV series. So it kind of feels like two, two whammies, two thumbs up. Um, but I think um, uh, a brave choice for picking it and also dumping on a film that you like. I, I like that. Um, I will... Uh, I, I, I get a feeling that Andrew and I will be uh, having some very in-depth discussion. Thank there's, you. Just, just to put, there's an ESPN documentary called What Carter Lost, which is all about the sort of flip side of this season, and that is absolutely brilliant. And interviews everybody that was involved in the in in the team and the robberies, um, and it's it's a fascinating look, and it's a it's a great counterpoint to to what is a, a great film that spawned one of the best TV shows of the of the last few years. So, so there you go again. I kind of because of possibly the ina- the inaccuracies in the film, it's had a life after that film where they've tried to um, right some of the, I guess, historical wrongs. So again, I guess that's a good thing. It is a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I have to say as well that Mark has got booted by his shit Wi-Fi during that, and when he came back, the first two things he heard Matt say were gang banging, and he thought he'd walked into a whole different kind of podcast. It's just a different Friday night in Matt Bones' house. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Friday night lights and gang banging. In Clive's film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, we'll get there. It's very smug look on Clive's face right now after that comment. <laughs> I don't know how yucky I'm going to feel with lovely Clive talking about that kind of stuff. Let's let's pause that for a while because I want to go to someone because this next person has picked a film that I don't think I've ever heard anyone say they liked, and it should have been so good. But then maybe you could have looked at the casting and thought, oh, right away, Nikolai, what film have you gone for? Yeah, uh, I got mine in a little late, so I'm not sure that everybody watched it uh, of the judges. But yeah, uh, for my choice, I've not really picked um, a movie that is mainly flawed by historical inaccuracies, um, but one that just wasn't a very good movie despite having a big budget uh, and an acclaimed director and a fantastic subject. Uh, And I've picked... Uh, Oliver Stone's 2004 film Alexander. Uh, this is an an epic uh, historical drama based on the life of Alexander the Great, um, starring uh, Colin Farrell as Alexander, and it follows him from childhood to him becoming king and conquering a huge chunk of the world, and finally his death. So I'm not an expert on on Alexander the Great or the period at all. Uh, but my understanding is that, that while there are some historical inaccuracies, uh, most of the movie is, is, uh, is all right on that point, and those minor uh, issues that could be there are either forgivable or understandable, given that you want to portray the life of, of one person in a couple of hours. Uh, so there are some creative liberties that we maybe can excuse, but 
the main problem of this um, of this movie is not really the the factual errors. It's the fact that it is simply incredibly boring. It is very long and it is very very boring. And when you have uh, a subject as interesting as Alexander the Great, arguably one of the most interesting historical characters ever, making such an absolutely boring movie about him is unforgivable. Uh, and while there are some beautiful shots and some quite epic battle scenes uh, in the movie, there are... Um... She, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> is that your wife coming in to say that she loves that film and she's going to fight you? No, she's saying I'm waking up the entire house. Okay. Uh, so I'll try to keep it. <laughs> um, yeah, there's some uh, beautiful shots and it's some uh, epic battle scenes in the movie, but overall, it's just it's just very long and it's it's super boring compared to the time you you will have ten minutes of 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 interesting stuff and then you will have an hour of absolutely boring stuff. With, where nothing happens, and then 10 minutes more of action, and then nothing. And that goes on forever, because this movie is three hours long in its shortest form, and some cuts are even four hours. I love uh, that they chronicled the passing of time by just applying more and more eyeliner to Jared Leto and Colin Farrell. It was like the thicker the eyeliner got, the older they were supposed to be. And conversely, an his mother didn't age at all. Angelina Jolie's still five minutes older than him at the end of the film. <laughs> It's ridiculous, but, you know, perhaps, you know, really good acting could have saved this movie uh, because it, it it is so focused on the characters. But the the acting is just not good enough to hold this movie. Uh, and, and, and you don't really care about the, the, the characters. You don't know their names because they, they just have a, a lot of Greek names and you can't really remember who's who. Uh, there's just boring dialogue. It holds no meaning and it drags on and on and on. I think you're that offended by Colin Farrell's um, bleached highlights as well. <laughs> that I mean, and that they just get bigger. He gets more and more bouffant as it goes on, doesn't he? And it's just like you you think like, what am I doing? I feel like I've I feel like this has been like in real time, and this has been the last ten years of my life. It is. That's a that's a problem with this thing because you know a, a movie like this sh- shouldn't be boring. Uh, it should you shouldn't wish that it was over and and that's pretty much what you do throughout the entire movie uh and a historical movie it should make you want to to know more about the subject and not make the audience feel that they have more than enough uh and they they really do and it's incredible that that you can make a movie sometimes when you make a, a movie about a person you always think that oh this movie should have been much longer to cover everything this one is way too long and the weird thing is that while it is very long the things that 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 Oliver Stone chose to cut out are really interesting parts, and then he's filled it up with all the boring parts in between very uh, important parts of his life and the and the story of Alexander, which just makes no sense to me. Uh, and just to finish on a on a personal anecdote about this movie, back when I was in high school, our history teacher actually brought a copy of Alexander on DVD to class for us to watch. And everybody knows that when you're a student, you know, having to watch a movie is just the best. But everybody who'd already watched this movie would, was just, oh, no, we don't want this. Can we just have a normal class? <laughs> and when students object to watching a movie during class, 
you really got something seriously wrong about your movie. So this is uh, really the most boring movie about the most interesting man ever. Uh, and that's why it's the worst historical movie ever. Do you know why I think it suffers? I think because he tries to stick to the actual history. That's mm-hmm. the reason it's so shit. Because all the really cool stuff happens early on. And then, yeah, he goes further and further and somehow ends up in Afghanistan. And that's what happens in the film. <laughs> And that's why. Yeah, and it, it's 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 worth noting that that you have um, you have Anthony Hopkins narrating the story uh, after after the fact that, and and sometimes he would just come in and just mention a whole bunch of stuff that happened, and then now we're here, and you were like, I would have loved to watch some of that stuff that you just talked about in a sentence, and and not watch all these other weird dialogue parts that just makes no sense and have no meaning at all. Holmes, I know you haven't seen this one, but how do you think you could buy Angelina Jolie being Colin Farrell's mother and a slightly incestuous relationship? Wouldn't be my first choice, to be honest. I mean, I, I haven't seen it. I thought I'd seen half of it, but I think what I'd seen was Troy. Is that the Orlando Bloom, Eric Banner one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so I, I've not seen it, but I know Simon, my co-judge, has. Simon, what did you make of it? I think Nikolai's bang on. Okay, so this is a fucking terrible movie, and it's really sad in a way, um, because the the problem is um, Gladiator had come out, and all of a sudden, Sword and Sandal epics were mm-hmm. in again. Gladiator, Gladiator is, a, is an amazing film, mainly because of a, of a brilliant central performance by Russell Crowe. The script isn't all that. Um, it's not got a great cast, uh, but uh, Ridley Scott and Russell Crowe, Russell Crowe grabs gladiator by the scruff of the neck and completely and utterly commits to it and that's possibly the first thing about alexander none of the actors uh look as though the script seemed that bad when they read the read the original paycheck which i believe actually is a quote from caligula uh that john gilgood said um it's fucking terrible and you feel that the hand of hollywood is there going oh make it like um kingdom of heaven make it like troy make it like gladiator do that do that and so as a result everybody's kind of got weird costumes and weird makeup and why the hell did Colin Farrell have to be have blonde hair and is sort of just walking around in a Mary Quant miniskirt did, for you like, not, <laughs> did you not find as well that Colin Farrell was he was out of his depth in that film and what happened with him is that he benefited hugely from the actors strike so he got a number of roles because he was willing to work when others wouldn't Matt Damon was supposed to be a minority report in 2003 and not him and that wasn't the only role he did that so he kind of got catapulted to stardom and he wasn't ready to be a leading man he's he's not a leading man and he wasn't ready to lead that and what makes me angry about this piece of shit is that no one is going to anytime soon put another 200 million dollars into the story of alexander the great and as someone who's descended from his armies i really want to see a good alexander the great film yeah i mean the problem is um colin farrell is kind of the eric barner of the uh jai courtney's do you know what i mean these People who, or even the Gerard Butler, he's the Gerard Butler of the, I don't know, but, but these people who can't, they're not movie stars and they can't carry films. And the real, real tragedy is that nobody does political films like Oliver Stone. W is brilliant. Nixon is fucking amazing. JFK is great. Yeah, I mean, it, thank you. Um, Oliver Stone, you know, Platoon. He, he, even Oliver Stone and what's the one 
Is this just called Nicaragua? I think it is, isn't it? What's the um, one about the drug cartel? So um, the uh, set in Latin America. He's a, and he wrote the. Remember, he wrote the screenplay for Scarface as well. Oliver Stone is a great, great filmmaker, and you just feel they go. He's gone. There's a really interesting story here about Alexander and everything else, and they've gone. Yeah, yeah. Here's some money. Do Gladiator. They go. Well, That's it's not the problem really like with that. this movie. It should have been better. It's not really like that. Make it like Gladiator. Okay, well, I've cast um, uh, uh, an age-appropriate actress to play Colin Farrell. We like Angelina Jolie. Put her in. In fact, everything, you look at that film, the casting's wrong, the script is wrong, and you kind of feel that Oliver Stone just kind of did a Robert De Niro. I will make this film, and they will give me a few million quid, and then I'll go off and make a film that I really want to make. And he's tried it three times, and seriously... I always say I can't polish a turd, but I can roll it in glitter. He cannot even roll this in glitter. It's a fucking dog of a move. It is. I think, um, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was Phone Booth, The Recruit, and Minority Report. So those three films that shot Colin Farrell to fame. Yeah, The Recruit, or is it The Rookie? It's one of those, yeah. It's the Recruit is the one with the CIA and that. The, definitely The Recruit and the other one were not supposed to be him, so he kind of inadvertently ended up in a leading role in Alexander. Kit politely has his hand raised. Yes, I just want to say on a scientific perspective, you can actually polish a turd. It is possible to do. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say as well that... With Alexander, what really offended me was that you got all the way to Afghanistan and it was so fucking lazy in the casting that in the entire world, the only person they could find to play his Afghan wife was a black woman. (laughs) Really (laughs) nailing it there with Rosario Dawson playing his missus. That was just the final slap in the face where I switched it off, I think. Right, okay, well done, Nikolai. Absolutely, that is a shower of shit and deserves to be panned. Let's go to... Do you know what? Because I'm just dying to hear this because it's going to be smutty as all hell and hilarious. Clive, how's your Wi-Fi holding up? It it wasn't so much my Wi-Fi. Our whole street just had a power cut. Okay, we'll give it a go and we'll see what happens. Which, hopefully, things are back on again now. And so things are working. Which is good, because you've kept me till after the watershed for this one, haven't you? Pretty much, yeah. Because Clive's been watching porn, haven't you? (laughs) In a manner of speaking. Let me begin with a quotation. I have existed from the morning of the world, and I shall exist until the last star falls of the night. Although I have taken the form of Gaius Caligula, I am all men, as I am no man. And therefore, I am a god. Oh my goodness, what can I possibly say about this? Caligula. Caligula is wrong in so many ways, possibly in every way. I cannot think of one redeeming feature of this film. It started out as a good idea. In 1974, Nixon had been forced to resign. The most powerful man in the world had overstepped himself. Gore Vidal, the author and political commentator, considerably to the left of Nixon, had an idea. He had already written books based upon Roman as well as American history, and now he wanted to write a screenplay showing how power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, an allegory of his time. And then he made a massive error. He got Bob Guccione and Penthouse involved in their first and only mainstream production. It seemed to go well to start with, 
a director was chosen, Cento Brass, the avant-garde Italian director. A cast assembled including John Gielgud, Peter O'Toole, Helen Mirram, John Steiner, and as Caligula, Malcolm O'Dowell. Brass recruited all sorts of weird and wonderful Italians, anarchists, prisoners, people off the street, to play the remainder of parts, and Guccione brought in penthouse pets to fill in the gaps, so to speak. What could go wrong? Well, everything. Brass fell out with Vidal. Brass fell out with Maria Schneider, who was set to play the female lead, Caligula's sister, Drusilla. When she tried to make her costume a little bit more modest, she was replaced by Therese Duran Savoy, who had worked with Brass before. Ultimately, Brass fell out with Guccione. The fallout with Vidal centred around Brass and Guccione's determination to step away from the allegorical tale that he had intended to tell, but to focus on simple depravity. The fallout between Brass and Guccione revolved around the different views that they had of the sex scenes. Brass wanted actors to simulate sex. Guccione wanted sex. In the end, Guccione snuck back onto the set with a crew and filmed body doubles shagging, which were later cut into scenes shot by Brass. Brass filmed enough, according to Guccione, to make the original version of Ben-Hur ten times over. Editing became the key to the film, and even that is fraught with dispute. Brass's name only appears as leading cinematographer. Yeah, something like that. Brass's name appears only as leading cinematographer. Blimey, I can't. Cinematographer, Clive. That's the word. That's the word. No director is listed. No editor is listed. The film has been cut a number of different ways, from ninety minutes to three hours. I watched two of those, the fans edit, which appears on YouTube at two and a half hours, and the 90-minute DVD. I can't say which I preferred. Each minute was a torture. The shorter version has no discernible plot. The longer version barely does, but also contains otherwise stricken scenes of rape and other sexual violence. The film doesn't really tell the story of Caligula's life or reign. It collects together a series of incidents, some of which may have some tenuous link to fact, and joins them together with the glue of unerotic fucking. The lighting is miserable. Every scene bar one, sorry, every scene bar one seems to be shot in a studio. The lighting is unnatural and creates a weird atmosphere like well, like many of Brass's other films. Half the actors could not speak English and are poorly dubbed by monotonous people just speaking their lines. The sets are ridiculously over-elaborate. The sex is brain-numbing. The horse, played by David, is possibly the best and only reasonable thing about it. The script is wooden and banal. I'm not sure how much of Vidal's original survived, but this is nothing like his novels. Here are some highlights. Caligula. Oh, here you have a taste for little boys. Is that not so? Chirira. No, Caesar. Big boys. Tiberius. Do you prefer nymphs to satires? Caligula. I like both, Lord. Tiberius. One needs both, yes, to keep healthy. Drusilla. You are a fool. Caligula. Caesar cannot be a fool. Priscilla. But he's trying very hard. Caligula. Caesar cannot be a fool. Caligula to Norgi. Longinus. 
You're not having any fun. Enjoy yourself. What's your preference? Loginus. Everything and nothing, Caesar. Caligula. You can't have both for the same price. Well, that wasn't exactly Shakespeare, was it? Quite what Gilgood, Mirren, O'Teal, Steiner and McDowell thought that they were doing is beyond me. Steiner does, however, steal the show by doing a very creditable impression of Dominic Cummings in his portrayal of Longinus, Caligula's financial advisor, at a time when Cummings himself was only four years old. In a film that abounds in nudity, there is one sweet irony. Helen Mirren, known for her propensity to discard her kit at the drop of a whatever, and who once answered the question, would you ever keep your clothes on in a film by quipping, only if the plot required it, is one of the only characters to remain clothed throughout. The film is filled with historical nonsense. I do wish we had Emma Southern here to give chapter and verse. The comics are comic. The costumes are comic. Was there really so much nudity abounding in ancient Rome? Did Rome building slaves do so with their todgers out? If Roman soldiers had dressed like that, they would have been laughed off the battlefield. Perhaps worse than all of that, IMDb tells us, most of the penises seen in the film would appear to be circumcised, which would be inaccurate as circumcision was not practiced in Rome. However, this is the least of the worries of this film, isn't it? However, on closer inspection, you can see that the penises are intact, with the foreskin retracted. TMI. And I must say, I did not cl look closely enough to check whether that was true or not. Even when it comes to erotica or pornography, the film fails. OK, it was shot in the mid-70s, and we didn't have so much naked flesh on screen then as now. Com but compared to its contemporaries, such as the early Emmanuel films, it gets nowhere. It's just sex for the sake of sex. Unpleasant sex, but not like Pasolini's Salo, which came out at about the same time and was fairly brutal. It didn't even do brutal sex well. The film achieves nothing. It's not a history. It's not an allegory. It's not even erotic. It's not so much a good wank as a load of wank. <laughs> and yet... It, it sold. It made loads of money for Penthouse and its lawyers. It was one of the best-selling Italian films of all time in the United States. I'm reminded of a review that Julian Barnes wrote in the New Statesman many years ago about another film. He said simply, The reason I started this column in such a foul state of mind is possibly the worst experience of my life in a viewing theatre. Colon. Eraserhead. I'm tempted not to review it. Okay, I succumb. Don't go and see us in your thousands. Don't go at all. Or don't you trust me? Actually, a razor head was worth seeing. Caligula is not. Or don't you trust me? I do trust you, Clive, but just asking for a friend, how do you do brutal sex well? <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the, well, pa Pasolini's Salo is a quite a remarkable and disturbing and... Great film. It's a difficult film to watch. Mm. Yeah. But there is a lot of sexual violence and deeply unpleasant sex in that. But it is put forward as an allegory for fascism, for repression. And it actually works very well, although it is because it makes you very disturbed. It conveys how disturbing fascism is. And so, yes, you can do brutal sex well. 
Okay, you gave me a sensible answer. I was hoping you were going to reply with something like a smash out about doors in. At uh, home, <laughs> you've got... Oh, come on! <laughs> As home, if you I watched this and you like got that. busted by your teenage son watching it, didn't you? I, I, I was watching it. I was, I was dusting my Star Wars figures and had it on in the background. Not a euphemism. And he came in to tell me something, a football score. And he was like, what are you watching? I thought, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um... Anyway, so I watched all of the um, fans edit that Clive mentioned on YouTube and it is terrible. I mean, I'm glad, Clive, you said that you, I couldn't follow it either. I thought um, maybe because I grew up in the Midlands in the 70s, it was art house and I was missing something. But actually, then I Googled it and then the penthouse connection and the unsimulated sex scenes. And then it all started to kind of make sense, really. I mean, there is a significant amount of nudity to the extent you're basically desensitised to it after about 20 minutes. And there's an awful lot of touching and groping going on. If if that's what happened in ancient Rome, then they're probably in more need of hand sanitizer than we are today, really, at the moment. Um, overall, I hated it. I thought it was massively up its own arse, metaphorically and probably physically as well. <laughs> Simon, what do you make of this nightmare? It's a, it's a really, okay, so it's a terrible film. And I remember going round to, um, uh, Jason Selden's house. Uh, he had also shown us Animal Fair, uh, not Animal Fair, Animal Farm. Uh, his dad had a copy of Animal Farm, um, in, um, a shoebox in the garage. He had loads of uh, videos there and he showed us, um, Animal Farm, a film called Babyface. And then he had, his dad had Caligula. I mean, um, you're, never what, too, you're never too, uh, too young to learn about the dangers of socialism, are you? <laughs> <Indeed>. <laughs> and, um, and having learned about the dangers of socialism, I wanted to learn about the Roman Empire and the fall of the Roman Empire, and I was looking forward to this. Um, it's a really weird film because, as Clive said, that you, you can't really sort of look at his, uh, Caligula without the history of Caligula. They had Gord Vidal. Um, you know, Gord Vidal is going to write the screenplay for this film. Yeah, most actors of the time and big actors Helen Mirren wasn't huge at the time but Malcolm McDowell was he'd done um Clockwork Orange um he'd done if he was kind of a man of the moment wasn't he Malcolm McDowell and to land John Gilgood you know these actors that's where the joke came from John Gilgood said he he didn't see all the pornography in the original paycheck but they didn't really care about the producers they cared that they had a Gore Vidal script and they had a um uh, a recognised cinematographer, and on paper at the beginning, this should have been great. But as soon as Bob Guccione saw the first, <laughs> Bob Guccione saw the first day's rushes or the first week's rushes, went, I don't think you understand. I'm putting up all this money because I want a porn film with great names. Why did he want that bit anyway? Anybody who anybody who watches porn, so I'm, to I'm told, always uh, fast forward <laughs> through the dialogue. That's not what you're there for. You're not through the Shakespearean machinations of the Roman Empire and how this, how this emperor um, uh, rose and then fell. So it's a really, really weird, weird film. Going back and looking at it, I had just a quick look, um, talking just to remind myself, but it's completely lit like a porn film. That's why the lighting is so harsh and bright and terrible. And in a way, I guess they were sort of saying... It, it, the film succeeds as a piece of bad art that people went to see to go, I couldn't believe that. And that's why it did so well. It's kind of like the porno showgirls of its day. Um, is it a great film? It's a terrible film. Is it historically accurate? <laughs> no, not at all. Um, 
and it's um and clive with a, a leap and a bound and even though his uh, wi-fi failed has made a very strong attempt to uh, lead this competition what you said reminds me of a very important quotation about pornography and drama which was something said of crossroads that soap opera set in the midlands and we have quite a few people here from the midlands it was said of crossroads that it was like pornography without the sex Oh, outstanding. I think you've made a really strong case there, Clive. Okay, but there are still some really strong contenders to come. Unfortunately, Lockie hasn't managed to get here tonight. He was going to do Pompeii. We're going to be subjected to the nightmare of Kit Harrington running around uh, while a volcano went off and sadly didn't kill everyone in the cast. Uh, (laughs) Let's do another one that is equally as shocking. Zach. I've picked something that really is kind of outside of the brief because it pretends to have historical connections without actually having anything to do with history whatsoever. Well, you say that, but if we'd have done this whole show without mention of the Holy Grail, we'd be failing, wouldn't we? Yeah, but hold that thought because you're going to get disappointed, believe me. Okay. Um, I'm quite happy to fall on my sword with this one because it is so bad that although it isn't perhaps the worst historical film, it is certainly the worst film of any description that I've ever wasted money on. And yes, let's clear this thing up. I am absolutely bitter about having wasted money on it. In 2012, a film was released which was so successful that the advertising department decided that it needed not one, but two titles. Released in DVD form as Knights Templar, this production charts the story of a knight who is betrayed by his comrades and vows to exact his bloody revenge. The only trouble is, and as the back cover of the DVD failed to attest to, he vowed to do that ten generations later in a single night of gratuitous gore. A point which you might be more prepared for if the film was marketed under its other title, Night of the Templar. Written by Paul Sampson, directed by Paul Sampson, and, yes, you've guessed it, starring Paul Sampson in not one but two leading roles, this film somehow managed to mani- this film somehow managed to accrue a dizzying 5.7 on IDMB and a mind-boggling audience score of 33% on Rotten Tomato. The film is basically a tedious tale of the lead character having an awakening in which he realises that he is the embodiment of Lord Gregoire. I bet they spent ages thinking of a suitable um, medieval-sounding name. I mean, who exactly has... that, just to interrupt, his full name is Lord Morris McGurk Gregoire of Reading. <laughs> great. That's, that's, that's great. That's and and so this kind cute. of sets the tone for the entire film. Yeah. Um, so for reasons that aren't entirely clear, he has this awakening at precisely the moment that he ends up hosting an events weekend with the other kind of 10th generation on living embodiments of his fellow crusader knights who betrayed him. If you're struggling to keep up, believe me, it's not worth watching the film to try and unpick all of this. Suddenly realising that some of the people attending that weekend are direct descendants slash reincarnations of the men who betrayed him, he exacts bloody revenge by gratuitously smashing people's heads in, slashing throats, and casually dismembering and disemboweling people. The cinematography? Well, there isn't any cinematography to speak of, frankly. The script is laughable, but not in a good way, featuring such classy lines as, This one right here. I'm going to do dirty shit to that one. And such philosophical musings as, 
I say just go for 10 lifetimes of excess. I mean, what the fuck, right? If you ever end up investing 100 minutes of your life in this film, you are likely to spend it wondering why on earth anyone invested $3.2 million in this thing, which I know is not large by film budgets, but it's still a waste of $3.2 million. In all honesty, the only reason that you will spend an hour and 40 minutes of your life on this thing is either because it's so bad that it almost becomes compelling, or in the desperate hope that there is some redeeming feature in the last five minutes. And spoiler alert, there really isn't. <laughs> in complete fairness, this film has literally no history in it, in large part, I think, because it's more horror slash mystery slash fantasy or some odd cocktail of all three. The reference to the Knights Templar is just an excuse, a reason to dress up in armour for a few cringeworthy flashback scenes that, in all honesty, would make novice reenactors look like seasoned veterans. But really, this comes back to my original point and the real problem that I have with this film. Why give it two titles? Don't pretend that it's all about the Knights Templar when there is nothing about them in it. There was scope for something at least half clever here. Perhaps some garbled references to the Holy Grail, the nature of the Templar Order, or even going to the extent of picking up on something to do with their dismemberment at the hands of King Philip IV of France. But there's none of that. There isn't even an attempt to ground it in history. History is just the excuse. And for all that I acknowledge that I am a biased historian on this, history deserves better than that. As Knight of the Templar, it's fine. Awful, but not something that is going to make the unsuspecting history enthusiast waste their hard-earned money on. As Knight's Templar, it promised something completely different. And in a bitter nod to the £10 of hard-earned student loan that I waste on it back in 2012, I present it to you as perhaps not the worst historical film, but rather just one of the worst films, period. Holmes, did you sit through it? Uh, I did, and I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. Until I'd seen this, Space Chimps 2 was the worst film I'd ever seen when I took my son to see it <laughs> when he was little. This is, is far worse than that. I mean, Zach's given you an overview of the plot in so much as it makes sense. The one bit of history, the, the knights, the knights bit seems to be a feud that takes place on the Iberian Peninsula in 1307. But when I Googled it, I couldn't see anything remotely crusade related that happened there at that time. And also then we get to Lord Gregoire when he turns up as his present day reincarnation. By this time, he looks a bit like a an airbrushed Roger Federer who swallowed his nan's lipstick. But he he arrives back. I think he I think that film is trying to tell us that he's arrived back at his castle, his descendants' castle. Uh, the castle that he arrives back at it was clearly like a sort of fancy sort of nineteenth century version of a castle rather than a proper medieval castle. And the other thing that took me a while to work out what was going on. It's not helped by People keep making references to him being a reality TV star, which I'm not sure if that's true or not. That's never bottomed out. But all of his sort of acquaintances and enemies that turn up, they all look completely different. So some of the knights are played by women, yet he looks exactly the same as his 10th generation going back. It's it's very, very confusing. Um, I mean, I think in the interest of fairness, Zach slightly messed that quote up. The actual quote is, that one there... I'm going to do dirty shit to her, which I think is up there with play it again, Sam, in the whole you know, quotes, great quotes of cinema. I mean, 
The script is awful. The acting is awful. I mean, we could do a better job between us with very little preparation and rehearsal. But I, I think Zach's picked up his own weakness here in that it's there's no it's not a historical film. It's not based on anything historic. Um, and if we start allowing things that are not real, loosely set in the set, same day to go back to the past, we might have to start including things like Good Night, Sweetheart, or perhaps even Mr. Ben. And I don't think we all want to go there. A good point. Simon, have you sat through this? I uh, I know of this film. I haven't sat through it. Um, and I was just refreshing myself by looking at it. And I, um, I've seen bits of it. What's so weird about this film <laughs> is this film is basically like one of those Agatha Christie revenge films where somebody invites 10 people to a haunted house and then knocks them off one by one. But they kind of went, yeah, let's do that. Let's invite 10 people we don't like to a location and murder them. And someone's gone, oh, sorry, sorry, Mr. Meeting. I was doing mind-altering drugs in the loo. Why don't we make his motivation is that all these people betrayed him when he was a knight? And they go, oh, yeah, what sort of knight? Uh, uh, a Templar knight? And they go, uh, if you say so, well, I don't know what that means. Because, um, well, he had a cross on the front. Yeah, do that. So they don't mention the Crusades or anything. And then they have this guy as the knight. And then they have this kind of murder mystery. And to make it even more annoying, and I forgot this, as I went to have a look at it, you'd think it'd be called uh, Knight Templar, but it's Knight of the Templar, as in not day of the Templar. It's a fucking, it's a clusterfuck of a movie and it can only be a tax dodge. It can only be one yeah. of those things that <laughs> Jimmy Carr and Gary Lineker and all that lot put their money in. Yeah. And it's like one of those of icebreakers that gets you out of playing tax. Well, when, I, when, I, when I was, um, many years ago, when I was doing my solicitor's finals exams and I, I, I did media law, the lecturer said, if you can make a film so cheap, you will always make a profit. And this was a long time ago. I think he said half a million pounds, you would always make a profit. Because you, it stays in copyright for years. You've got TV stations that are now have to fill space at three o'clock in the morning. And this is the type of shit they're going to buy. You know, it will earn you some money sort of thing. I mean, On I, that the basis, thing. there are 17 people in this room, including a media lawyer in the UK, a lawyer in the US, and Clive, who can do insurance shit. Uh, and a load of historians. If someone wants to give us $3 million, we will come up. Kit can do the plot because he's a deviant. Zach's got his hand up probably for some nudity. What? Pretty much, yeah. I, yeah. I was going to say, you know, if, if people want to throw $3.2 million yeah. my Nikolai's way, got some guns. I will quite happily make a shit film for less than $3.2 million. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that's absolutely fine. We've even got our test of actors as well. I'll, I'll happily volunteer myself for the swooning maiden. Yeah, I mean, Marcus <laughs> has got swords, Nikolai's got guns, we've got lawyers for distribution, Matt can do some technical shit. Simon? I don't mind being yeah. the black guy who gets killed early as long as I have an <laughs> unsimulated sex scene. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. Uh, well, Kate hasn't said no to that, so yeah, that's fine. <laughs> unsimulated <laughs> sex, unsimulated violence, I'm good with that. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> okay, so we're going to make a fortune out of that. Uh, that was a really good shout out, thank you for that. Okay, let's go to, from something that is sublimely ridiculous, I want to go to something that's actually just really fucking disturbing. Kit, are you ready? 
I think it's your one. I am. I am, I am ready for disturbing. Um, so my one is uh, um, it is United Passions, which uh, I'm proud to say is a film that features neither unity nor passion. Um, it is. <laughs> Um, it is a film that should be an Assassin's Creed movie because nothing is true and everything is permitted. It is a film that claims FIFA, the international football organization, ended apartheid, reconciled the Argentine junta and stopped Britain's evil hatred of foreigners. And at no point in the film do they show you how they did any of this. Who made this, to quote The Guardian, cinematic excrement? <laughs> Unsurprisingly, it was bought and paid for by FIFA. They funded a £20 million film about themselves. When it was released in the US, it grossed $918 for the entire run, making it the biggest box office bomb in history. It holds a 0% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and is considered one of the worst movies of all time. And I want to stress, nothing I say here is hyperbole and all of them are actual scenes and lines in the movie. But please don't watch this because it hours of tedious boardroom boredom it is a snooze fest 90 percent of the film is in boardrooms where executives talk at not to each other believe me it's not even worth watching for the unintentional comedy but let's work our way through the film shows three generations of fifa executives we kick off in 1904 with fisher stevens aka the dude in brown face from short circuit trying to found an international football organization he rocks up to England, where there is a man in a top hat and monocle who is the head of the FA yelling abuse at a football team. His halftime take is, quote, Men, I want you to acquire the ball, keep the ball, then shoot. Now, what do these bloody frogs want about our beautiful game? The English are insulted that foreigners even want to touch football, let alone regulate it. And later we find out that their motivation is that they hate all black people and women. Literally, one of the Englishmen says that in the script, boasting about how great they are. Anyway, Fisher Stevens and his mates go away, yell, I hope their island sinks, down with the English and down with Admiral Nelson, then hold hands around the table and announce they're going to make FIFA. And again, this is in 1904, about 100 years after Admiral Nelson died. Cut to 20 years later, and the FIFA's new president is Jules Romay, played by Gerard Depardieu. How do we know he's Jules Romay? Because one reporter asks, who was that? And gets the reply, he's Jules Romay, the new president of a football organisation no one's heard of called FIFA. Romay decides to insult the entire nation of Uruguay for attention and is furious that all, all papers ignore him. However, one Uruguayan diplomat does take note and suggests that FIFA hold the first World Cup in his country to mark its anniversary. He offers them to, to build them a stadium and to give them loads of money. They literally buy the first World Cup. Romay pretends that other countries have got a shot. He fakes a bidding process. But lo and behold, Uruguay wins. FIFA's own movie shows them being corrupt from the very start. This is followed by 40 minutes of building a stadium, making a trophy and yet more English racism about Africans, including comments such as women should stick to sewing and learn good housekeeping. We then have a few World Cups, although we skip entirely World War II. Uh, FIFA apparently not only predicted that, but they ended it with the power of prayer. Uh, and in the 1950s, Rimei dies, and we skip to Sam Neill doing an incredibly dodgy accent. This is Yao Havelange, and he is the Brazilian president of FIFA, Sam Neill. 
to save time, I'm going to skip over the entire section of this movie, the, uh, the, 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 sorry, the movie of the, the section, because nothing happens in it at all. Uh, there is just another English racist, and Sam Neill is in a swanky apartment overlooking Copacabana Beach, playing Sabutio and fixing the World Cup for the Argentinians, because they need, quote, good news, despite sponsors are worried about human rights violations. We then get to Tim Roth's character, our hero for the second half of the film, Sepp Blatter. He is brought in with the hilariously ironic line, this is Blatter, apparently he's good at finding money. Now, Saint <laughs> Sepp in the film, <laughs> Saint Sepp in the film is incorruptible. He is a giant who ignores the bad press about him and wants to wipe dirty money out of the beautiful game. He gives this amazing speech to rally Africa to his cause, although we have no idea what the speech is because the movie cuts away as he says, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, apparently the speech fixes racism. Uh, he wants women in football too. Again, this is slightly ironic given the real Blatter famously said that they needed shorter shorts so that people could pervert them. Uh, but he explains to an Adidas rep that he meets at a motorway service station that he's going to rid the world of the evil corruption plaguing the game. The sport is spotless, he later claims to a gathered assembly, who reply, and I wish I was kidding, is that a threat? Step battles financial shortages, dodgy deals, all while being attacked in the press in vague accusations that are never specified in the film. And in one dull scene, he staves off the attempt to oust him by saying he'll reveal everyone else is up to something. Up to what? Corruption, financial misdeeds, being English, we never actually see it, and he never reveals what he was going to reveal because everyone backs out and Sepp wins election again. It just cuts to him winning. And we only know that, uh, that he's victorious because the film ends with him, still president, creepily opening an envelope with his tongue out and revealing that South Africa will win, the, will host the next World Cup. This is a supposedly happy ending because Sepp loves Africans and Adidas and Adidas lower and Africa loves him. Football has been taken away from the evil English and thanks to Sepp Blatter, given to the world. The end. Now, for those of you who don't know, the great irony about making a movie like this is largely, especially about Sepp Blatter stamping out fear for corruption, is that the week the film was released, it was revealed that there was a massive corruption scandal in FIFA and pretty much everyone except the English were in on it. Twelve men pled guilty to criminal charges and Blatter was forced to quit as president. He is currently serving a six-year ban from football. But even Blatter as the hero, uh, if he was the hero that he's portrayed as in the film, the movie is garbage. It is tell-not-show cinema. It is almost two hours of boring, boring movie that will leave you feeling numb inside and hating football, a game that they never actually show in the movie. There are other hideous propaganda movies on this list uh, that you'll hear about tonight. But at least they have a script to try and make their awful protagonists look good. United Passions can't even do that. Yeah, amen. I think I get the idea that the editing room for this was like Set Blatter was exactly like Kevin Costner when the editing for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves happened, where they just locked themselves in and cut together a film that made them look awesome and didn't care if it made any sense. Somehow it worked with Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. It really didn't work with this film, did it, Holmes? No, I mean, in, in, in full transparency, I, I haven't seen it. For rights reasons, it's not available in the UK. Um, 
all, all I could do was import a Blu-ray for 32 quid, and I thought, fuck that. So, uh, um, cool. I, I did watch as many trailers and clips as I could find online. I spent like 90 minutes looking out stuff and looking at reviews that had clips in it, and it does look awful. But the cast is the cast is quite good. I mean, presumably they only did it for the money. Uh, well, uh, they've admitted to it. Tim Roth has said the only reason he did this film was the money. Uh, then you've got Gerard Depardieu, who was at the time having trouble for, with legal purposes in uh, France. I think he was in, living in Russia at the time. Um, and Sam Neill, goodness knows what Sam Neill was doing, but he was trying to set up a vineyard around that time. So again, did it for money. Um, so you've got these three fantastic actors. Granted, on their day, they're brilliant, but they are all just doing it for a cash cow. And it's, it's slightly odd that it only ever seems to have been released in the US. Uh, well, um, I think it's basically they tried to release it in the US and it was kind of so much of an embarrassment that they just decided to pretty much abandon it. They did release it in other countries. It did make some money. Um, I think it was Russia. Um, it made a little bit of money, but uh, it is still considered the largest box office bomb in history. And also I was the, the English guy with the monocle who you referred to was... Um, Lord Kinnaird, who actually played in some of the earlier cup finals. And I don't know if anyone's seen the English game on Netflix, but he's quite progressive in that. He's the one that ultimately ends up agreeing with the um, striking mill workers, etc. So I don't know if he was badly, wrongly portrayed in the English game or in the FIFA one. My money would probably be on the FIFA one. Well, he's in the um, pub when they found the... Uh, sorry, he's an old Etonian, so let me step in here. Uh, he's in the pub when they found the Football Association and actually his son is killed in action in World War One as well. So he's actually a really good character in real life and I feel that he's probably been Mel gibson in that film. Almost certainly. I mean, every single English character is... Their only character trait is despicable. Um, and they say horrendously racist and sexist things, every single one of them. I mean, I suppose in terms of accuracy, um, we didn't go into the World Cup, I think, until 1950. So we missed out on the first three or four tournaments because I think we felt it was beneath us. So there is always that element, not that it excuses the rest of it. Simon, have you seen this one? Yes, I have. Ah. And I saw this film because, and you should Google it and have a look at it, uh, John Oliver um, uh, made me see this film because he did a brilliant rant about it just after the um, after Qatar had won the uh, World Cup. Mm. And I'm, I was just looking up his quote, what he said, and the quote was brilliant. I remembered it, um, I, but I wanted to get it right. He said, um, who makes a sports film where the heroes are the executives? <laughs> <laughs> There's no nail biting. You never see any football in this film. You're right. And um, I, I saw it because I couldn't believe that Tim Roth and Sam Neill were in it. Um, uh, it on the Wikipedia page, it said that the one cinema in America reported uh, the gross receipts when it was uh, had its run as $9, which meant that one person bought a ticket to see it. So this kind of has um, FIFA stamped all over it because... For some reason, nobody knows about it, which means they can't have marketed it. So it must just be another way for them to launder money in some way, shape or form. This Either that never... or the history press where they're marketers. I'll cut that out, Holmes, <laughs> don't worry. I mean, it, was, it was never meant to be. Historically, you kind of really don't know because it is a, well, it is a dramatised and also romanticised version of a truth. And it's kind of a propaganda thing coming from 60s 
FIFA, so you can't, it's, it's a difficult film to knock historically, but as a piece of storytelling and as a film, it's just really, really, it's really, really bizarre. It's just, um, it's, um, it's worth watching some of the clips on YouTube just to, just to see, you kind of go, there's a Tim Wilson in Aeroplane just finding out that he's become the head of FIFA. That's a really weird, I don't think you can get text on it. Just everything about it can't get text on Aeroplane. It's just a bizarre film. A good choice. Good choice. I've been having some fun tonight. I've been looking at the Amazon five-star reviews for the films. We've- yeah, for, for some of them, there are people that have generally defended. Knights Templar had a few. But for United Passions, every single one of them is a piss take. <laughs> it's literally like an absolute turd of a film. Five stars. So bad. So anti-English. So awful. So drab. So net, So, so. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it, it's literally 28 reviews at five stars that are all just saying, just basically ripping the piss out of it. It's brilliant. I, I Thank you, Amazon. Yeah, um, I don't know anyone who's, who's well, very few people have seen it, but uh, obviously Simon has. Uh, in terms of its historical accuracy, I would just point to the, the court record, uh, which very clearly demonstrates that there was uh, a certain level of corruption in certain characters that were portrayed as, as angels in the movie. Yeah, um, but, it is a, but it is a marketing film for, they paid for it, and it's bizarre. It, bizarre. it reminds me of that weird, um, that, that clip about Scientology that Tom Cruise did, um, if you remember that from a couple of years back. It has yeah. that kind of sort of pod people kind of aspect to it. I'd just like I, to know what would happen if, like, Zach and I watched this film. Because I, I quite enjoy football movies, but well, things around football, Mean Machine, Green Street, and stuff like that. And as as self confessed football dislikers, I think it would just be quite interesting to watch us implode. Imagine if they made a imagine if they made a film about the HR manager of Royal Mail going out for a drink with um the uh with the fire marshal uh who's on floor seven and has to make sure everybody gets. That's what it is. These these are just not interesting characters. Yeah. <laughs> but, but Simon, I'd watch that. Well, if we do a lot of uh, safety at work, Simon. So <laughs> this, this is Tim Roth starring as an Excel spreadsheet. It is not yeah. a good movie. Holmes, did you want to add? Well, I was just going to say the the film that Simon was just briefly outlining there. I, I would watch that if they are all tenth generation ex Knight Templars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Three words, Andrew. Unsimulated sex scene. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Are you asking? Yeah. <laughs> Only if you get to wield one of Nikolai's rifles. Just <laughs> and giggles. During the unsimulated sex scene. Uh, because in case anyone is still listening and considering is giving us money, uh, we, if, if Fifi's spent 20 million on that, we want some more. But we can offer a qualified producer in Charlie who's got a degree. Uh, and uh, we can offer... Dorman as the Irish baddie. So, speaking of Dorman, so we've done some ickiness with Blatter and his corruption, but we're going for a whole fucking other level of ickiness with you. You wanted this before we'd even really discuss what the theme was, didn't you? I hate this film so much. So, the film I have chosen is Gods and Generals. So, on January 6th of this year, a crowd of domestic terrorists stormed the Capitol in Washington. Uh, Many of those were carrying the battle flag of Northern Virginia, a flag which is 
inexorably tied to the Confederacy and the American Civil War. And this act of violence and ignorance epitomizes the danger of brainwashing, the lost cause movement, and neo-Confederacy as a whole. And it is in this bubble that Gods and Generals sits so very proudly. So for those of you who don't know, Gods and Generals is a prequel to the film Gettysburg, which came out before it. It was released in 2003 and was directed by Ron Maxwell. Gettysburg is dated, but it's a fine war movie. It has problems for sure, but on the whole, it's passable. It's serviceable. What Gods and Generals does is it takes all the issues Gettysburg has and decides to double down on them. Ron Maxwell is to a film that a spreadsheet is to a PowerPoint presentation. He prides himself on getting names right and perhaps dates and locations, but he declines to include any kind of actual story. Gods and Generals is ostensibly the story of Stonewall Jackson, who was played by the same guy who plays Pickett in Gettysburg, which, you know, we're going to leave that aside. But had he actually stuck with that story of Stonewall Jackson, it could have been a decent film, but he doesn't. So General Lee, the Chamberlain brothers, General Hancock, and all these other characters from the Civil War all need to get a feature. And these narratives are so poorly woven together, it looks like something knitted by someone who has no thumbs. It is a complete mess. The film has no real plot. It's a collection of vaguely exciting random events which happen to occur in chronological order and are placed as such in the film. There are a number of historical accuracy issues with it, but we'd need a much longer podcast to list them with. This is going on for long enough already. What Maxwell's film process is, is he decides to cherry pick random events that he deems to be exciting and then portrays them in a bloodless, pointless way. So the film begins with the Confederacy reluctantly seceding from the Union and it's then followed by many boring speeches. We meet... 15 different Confederate generals over the course of the film and how they all explain in their own speeches, it seems, how tragic the war is, how they do not wish to go to war, how the North started the war. Please fuck off. And after a while, we finally get to this war and it's about as bloody as a stag party. The battle scenes are honestly offensive in how PG they are. I don't think every movie needs to be a gore fest, but the American Civil War has some of the most charnel house battles the world has ever seen and i think to do them justice and to actually show the war properly you do need to show a little bit of violence so not content with full assing one battle ron maxwell decides to half ass four so we have the first bull run which is very pretty uniforms but it takes one of the extras telling us what happens to actually know what's going on. And that kind of sets the tone for the whole thing. Every battle is a mess. The Battle of Antietam was the bloodiest single day of battle in American history. It's portrayed relatively well in the film Glory. In this film, it's two regiments firing water pistols at each other in a cornfield. It's fucking pathetic. Then you come to the Battle of Fredericksburg, which is particularly offensive to me because in it you have the 69th New York, who are all Irish, charging towards a stone wall, which is defended by Irishmen. And it's supposed to be this moment of Irish solidarity and coming together and the Confederate Irish are crying as they're shooting down the Irish coming towards them and they end up shouting Baru in reference to Brian Baru at the Irish who they have slaughtered and it's really tragic and sad except in actuality Lee, General Lee himself, was concerned that the Irish at the wall would have, you know, problems with shooting at the Union soldiers. And he said, you know, shall I pull them back and replace them? And they said, no, they didn't give a damn. And they fucking mowed down the Union Irish. There was no issue there whatsoever. So 
it's this constant need to dramatize things and make the Confederate cause seem in some way sympathetic. And finally, we have the last battle, which is shown as Chancellorville. And here we see many stuntmen standing up and marching out of trees. There are 10 shots of different reenactors standing up and marching out of trees. And this is supposed to raise the tension or something. It's this master stroke outflanking maneuver. It's a load of shite. Uh, the funniest scene in the film is obviously Jackson getting shot um, by friendly fire. And we're supposed to view him as this, you know, sad sort of uh, hero death or what have you. But another core issue with it are the extras that I mentioned earlier. Now, I know reenactors bring their own gear and they are cheap and they are passionate. And this is all, these are all positive qualities. But can we please put the young, thin ones who actually look like soldiers in the front of shot instead of the really fat, old, graying ones? Because <laughs> I know. Five is mortified. Look. <laughs> I'm sorry, but not every member of the Confederacy was a large porch-sitting, tea-drinking old boy. You know, some of them were quite emaciated, I imagine, particularly after months on campaign. And as I said, the bloodless battles are just a serious issue. So you have these reenactors who are clearly trying to mind themselves as they fall over very slowly to the ground. It just comes across a little bit comical if it wasn't the subject matter was so dangerous. And this is the last thing I want to talk about is how dangerous this film actually is in its presentation of the Confederate cause. I think we're introduced to three black characters over the course of it, all of whom are very content with their slave situation. They're very happy. They love their masters. They treat them very well. One is a freed man who has these conversations with um, Stonewall Jackson about whether or not you should have freed the slaves and everything like this. And that could have been an interesting storyline, but it's brushed aside. And they focus so much on these men being happy to be Confederates and thinking the Union is somehow evil. Uh, The only racial slur to come out of any soldier's mouth comes out of that of a Union soldier. And if that, that in alone, in a microcosm, sums up the issues with this film. There is no mention of why the war actually began. Well, there is. It's just it's a very specific narrative. There's no discussion of the defense of the bottom line of slaveholding property owners' profit margins. It's The film itself just triumphs the antebellum South, the Lost Cause movement. And I would argue that as ahistoric as it is, As a propaganda piece, this is probably the most dangerous film, bar maybe John's Choice, on this list. And I think it's an evolution of John's Choice, in a way. And as the camera pans in the very last scene to the coffin of Stonewall Jackson and settles on the Confederate flag, which was carried into Washington last week, I think it's fairly easy to see how important it is for this film to be slated and for people to recognize that it is just a piece of lost cause Confederate shit. And for that reason, it's got to be the worst historical movie of all time. Fat reenactors aside. We like fat reenactors, but not in this case. You're getting applause all over the room there. Marcus, Princess has got his hand up. Yeah, I, I mean, Andy and I get a lot of banter about Irish Anglo history and Anglo-Irish history, but I've never been so offended by the words out of his mouth of find the young, slim rear. <laughs> it just doesn't exist. You can have one, you can have the other. I don't know, maybe hire some acting students and give them your uniform and maybe take it in four sizes and send them off to... So I'm 31, grey and a bit chubby around the waist. <laughs> or, or Dorman. Yeah. Do local improv groups because they'll do it for quote unquote exposure. 
uh, give me anger. Yeah. Give me racism. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Holmes, it's, you said you met Ted Turner once. Yes, I used to work for Turner Broadcasting many years ago, and um, he came over at Christmas after a Christmas, to go to a Christmas party, and then he went round and shook hands with everyone in the entire building. Um, what made it slightly uncomfortable for me is I, I shared an office. Uh, I was in an office next to a man who is now my friend, and he went into my friend Tony's office, shook his hand, said, I'm Ted, what do you do? Nice to meet you, etc." And then between me and Tony's office, there were a, a table with a pile of newspapers on so he left Tony's office and my friend Tony came in to see me thinking Ted had been in to see me. But Ted had been distracted by the newspapers on the front. I think he was on the cover of one of them at the time. And so then Ted came into my office, shook my hand. And my friend Tony was in there who had just shaken his hand a minute beforehand. But he completely forgot he'd shaken my mate Tony's hand. So he shook his hand again and it was all a bit weird and we were all a bit uncomfortable. <laughs> what did you make of this film? Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was... I thought it was awful. I'm, I'm glad Dorman pointed out that the plot was difficult to follow. This was the last film that I'd seen in the whole of this epic marathon. And uh, my attention perhaps wasn't what it perhaps could have been. But um, So I'm glad it wasn't just me finding the plot um, difficult to follow. The um, It's just boring and tedious. And there's the whole lost cause thing. Um, it's it, Yeah, it's it's not it's not good. John, as a southerner, what do you make of it? Well, bear in mind that I'm on a street that is parallel to Ted Turner Boulevard, which now runs almost the length of Atlanta. Um, you know, it's been a long time since I've looked at that. And uh, as somebody who would not fit Dorman's criteria for what makes a good reenactor, <laughs> in fact, I would, uh, I would not fit into the uniform of a good reenactor. Um, I gotta say that, uh, you know, I could, I could go, it, it, I think, uh, Andy's, uh, criticisms are entirely fair. Um, but I'm viewing it through the lens of my pick. So I'm just gonna have to hold my powder yeah. dry, so to speak. Yeah, that's a fair point. Uh, Matt, you're getting angry reading the five star reviews of this. No, no, I, I was angry before. I hate this movie. I, I think I almost hate this as much as I hate John's movie. Yeah. The problem is with John's it. movie, you can kind of see every blockbuster that ever came after it. So there's there's a weird thing going on there. But seriously, I I thought it'd be a giggle to look at the five star reviews. And honestly, I'm 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 even madder that this film was made now because most of them are just saying this film's not racist. It's showing an oppressed people fighting back against northern oppression. Um, uh, and one person said it it. Worse than the racism is the schmaltz, and I'm I'm not sure how you can how you can do do that. It's films like this, as you know, as Dorman put beautifully, that feed feed. I don't. It's the only time I'm giving you a compliment. <laughs> it feeds this weird ideal that we that we saw enacted the other day because they they think that this is what happened and what it was about, and it's. Also, I mean, if you, if you didn't have any knowledge of the whole slavery issue, I, I, I don't think you'd come away from this any the wiser, you know. Hmm. Simon, as a person of colour, how do you view this absolute shit show? Interesting, actually, because I went through a kind of... I, I watched the Ken Burns um, Vietnam documentary about 18 months ago, and then after that I just wanted to watch everything that Ken Burns 
had done. So I watched his Civil War documentary. And at the beginning of lockdown, I watched Gettysburg and I started watching this film. This film is a really, really um, beautifully shot film. It's like it's you, you look at it and they've got a cast of thousands. They've got some of the best equipment there. I mean, the amount of times that the camera starts at sort of ground level and then uh, uh, sort of pulls back to reveal huge fields or huge, um, uh, huge uh, towns with people milling or, or marching down the center of town. So this film has all the, um, this film has a kind of all the facets of being kind of a major production and a bona fide piece of art, but it is Lenny Riefenstahl. <laughs> it's just a terrible, terrible film. It takes no, um, it takes, it doesn't have a critical eye at, at all. It's kind of made for an audience who kind of would go, oh, you're into this, aren't you? You should watch this. And then it's got a general release. It's like to, it's like if Oi and Screwdriver were suddenly on a Now That's What I Call Music album or, um, or Tommy Robinson did the Queen's speech on Christmas Day. It's just really weird the way that it's, it looks and smells like a movie, but it's a terrible piece of propaganda. And it's weird as well, because the guy who directed this, um, as you said, made Gettysburg. And Gettysburg isn't a bad movie. Gettysburg's quite dull. It's not a bad movie, but it takes a, um, it takes a view. And then what's really weird is that one of the main characters in Gettysburg, he's recast in a different yeah. role. That, <laughs> that's really strange. That's a bizarre thing to do. Um, but yes, it's, um, you kind of feel that the audience, well, you know one audience that it's pandering to, but there are a lot of, uh, Christian film review sites um, in America, because you know we have to remember that our fanatical Christians left England to go to America, and on that pioneer trail, there's sort of all those people who sort of, with, with apologies to our American here, but a lot of the people through that middle America are kind of the fanatical Christians who left and landed on on Plymouth Rock. They are real, real Bible types, and I think this film has been made for those Christian fundamentalist rights who complain, you can read their websites, they review things like Toy Story and think it's too violent and too sexy. This film they would love because of the PG battle scenes. All the families portrayed in the film, everything's very homely. And from a certain point of view, these men are men of honor and everything else. It's just really kind of making, uh, it's sort of like taking the Nazi party and making Little House on the Prairie with them. Exactly. Yeah. To, to be fair, when, I mean, I'm looking back at my notes, and at the end, it was like I found myself willing Stonewall Jackson to die just so <laughs> could fucking finish. <laughs> the, the, the only death that sort of um, is is portrayed as mattering in the film, other than Jackson's, is there's a little girl who offers him lemonade halfway through the film, and uh, and and he sort of starts sobbing. The little girl died of, of off-screen consumption or something. Scarlet um, fever. Scarlet Fever, thank you. Which is obviously incredibly sad, but it has that horrible sort of sitting on the porch, sipping lemonade, and um, and kind of this this attitude towards the South, which just didn't exist. Um, the extended edition, which features the Battle of Antietam, is even worse because the chorus of the film, which is cut out of the theatrical thing, is John Wilkes Booth, the assassin of Abraham Lincoln, who appears at stage in different points doing different plays that sort of show what's going to happen to these characters. 
if you make John Wilkes Booth your hero, you are doing something wrong. Actually, that is something I forgot to mention. At the, at the, towards the end, I'm not sure if it's the extended cut or not, but John Wilkes Booth basically turns to the audience and says, well, it's up to you who to decide who the hero is. <laughs> Fuck you. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. I'm just Joseph Mengele. I can't yeah. say. I'm a doctor. What would I know about politics and stuff? <laughs> I... Oh dear, but you know what, judges, if you think that's bad, um, we're about to go a step worse, aren't we, John? Uh, My film tells all the other films here, hold my beer. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Uh, I decided to bypass my first choice, Abraham Lincoln versus Zombies, to uh, play the card. And this one is difficult because in 2017, Atlantic Magazine uh, called it the most influential film ever made. In 1998, the American Film Institute ranked it as the 44th greatest film of all time. Released in 1915, the film I'm going to talk about was the first big feature film. It pioneered or popularized techniques used in nearly every film ever since. It pioneered or popularized the parallel action sequence, the use of multiple storylines within a film, tracking shots, switchbacks, so you could see the interior and exterior views of the same action. It was a, uh, an early proponent of close-ups of, uh, on the actors' faces to show emotion, It uh, pioneered the fade-out, the long shot. It used smoke and angles and long shots to make a battle, a a skirmish of 200 extras look like a battle among thousands of soldiers. It was also the first film screened inside the White House. It was the first big blockbuster uh, at the box office, the highest-grossing film in absolute numbers until Gone with the Wind, and if adjusted for inflation, by one account, the highest grossing film until Avatar. The movie has been taught in virtually every film school course for the, uh, for the last hundred years, basic film school course. Uh, Spike Lee, in an interview, talked about watching it as required viewing his first year. The American Directors Guild's highest award was named after its director, and uh, that award has been uh, given to people who have been influenced by this director, uh, people like Akira Kurosawa, Alfred Hitchcock, Stanley Kubrick, Jackie Treehorn, and many others. So it's one of the greatest films in one sense from a technical and cinematic standpoint. 
On the other hand, it is almost three hours of racist propaganda that set back race relations in the United States for over 100 years. The movie breathed new life into the Ku Klux Klan, which is an American white supremacist terror group. The KKK used it, the film, as a recruiting tool into the 1970s. The movie set up the environment that created discriminatory Jim Crow laws and an environment that led to the lynchings of hundreds, if not thousands, of black American citizens. This was not a film that everybody believed it, the, its message back then. It was not without controversy. A, a New York rabbi in 1915, and New York was one city where the movie was a huge hit, referred to this film as an indescribable, foul, and loathsome libel on a race of human beings. Over time, the movie became far more damaging than a film it is compared to, Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will. I'm talking about David W. Griffith's 1915 masterpiece, Birth of a Nation, based on Thomas Dixon's novel, The Klansman. Now, Birth of a Nation is basically the story, it begins as the story of two families, one in the North, one in the South, on opposite sides of the American Civil War. As the Civil War rages, uh, director David Griffith proves his mastery of the camera. Close-ups of the heroine, Lillian Gish, and the use of smoke and camera angles and the rest made Birth of, the Nation, Birth of a Nation a big step forward in cinematic art. The first part of the movie ends with Lincoln's assassination, and it actually begins, or early into it, you see Lincoln signing an order calling for volunteers to join the Union, Union Army to start the Civil War, after which he looks like he's regretting what he did and almost looks like he wants to say, oh, please, somebody shoot me in the head for doing this. Well, the movie ends after an hour and a half. The Civil War is over. Lincoln is assassinated. And the second part is where we see the boys in the hoods come out. And this second part of Birth of a Nation takes it to next level racism. Uh, it includes a number of quotes from American President Woodrow Wilson uh, through a, on, on the storyboard. It's a silent film, so if I quote a dialogue from you, it would be like this. But the storyboard itself says uh, has quotes from uh, President Wilson, such as, The white men of the South were roused by mere instinct of self-preservation until at last there had sprung into existence a great Ku Klux Klan, a veritable empire of the South to protect the Southern country. And, and lest you think that is a, uh, a taking his quote out of context or a fake news quote, no, it came from one of Woodrow Wilson's uh, five-part histories of the American people. Now, the bad guy in the movie is Silas Lynch. He is a mixed-race leader of blacks. Yes, the leader of the blacks is named Lynch. Um, and he's, not, he's a mulatto, uh, mixed race, but, but not actually mixed race. Uh, he appears to be a white guy with a heavy dose of self-tanner. Self in fact, there were very few black actors in this movie. Most of them were whites wearing blackface. Now, Silas Lynch leads soldiers from the North to enforce the right of blacks to vote in the South, set, set, movie set in South Carolina. He uh, uses soldiers to prevent whites from voting, and the uh, blacks who vote take over the state legislature. So we see uh, close-up angles of these newly elected 
African-American legislators with bare feet on the desks of their, their legislature, uh, eating fried chicken and leering at white women as they vote to repeal the ban on interracial marriage. Meanwhile, back at the Southern family's home, hometown, another black guy, again, basically an Irishman with black makeup, um, tries to uh, rape the daughter of the Southern family. She jumps off a cliff, a la Last of the Mohicans, to preserve her honor, but is able to tell in her dying breaths her heartbroken brother who did it. Now, the brother is inspired to figure out what to do when he sees some small white children dressing in sheets to frighten black children away. And pretty soon, the nation is born, and that, of course, is the Ku Klux Klan. The KKK gets sheeted up and rides to uh, find the rapist. They shoot him after giving him a fair trial by torchlight. Then the other bad guy, Self Tanner, finds out about the KKK and sends black soldiers to hunt down anybody who has a sheet. And for good measure, he even tries to date rape the daughter of a northern senator played by Lillian Gish. At this point, both northern and southern whites unite to fight the repression of the black thugs. When these troops, again, uh, you know, whites in blackface, begin laying siege to the southern family's cabin, the Ku Klux Klan comes in riding in heroically, wearing sheets, wearing sheets on their horses even, uh, casting somehow managed to find racist horses, and uh, they shoot up and drive off self-tanner's army of, of, of black uh, men. The Ku Klux Klan even manages to save the daughter of the northern senator, which I think is very considerate of them. Well, the movie ends with the election. The next election, the Ku Klux Klansmen are on horseback sitting outside the voting place, and they point guns at any black citizen who is impertinent enough to attempt to vote. An order is restored. Essentially, for two and a half hours, the black American citizens in this film are almost uniformly portrayed as cowardly, superstitious, rapacious, disloyal, lustful, and ignorant. This is not just another lost cause or damn Yankee kind of film. What made it so dangerous is that for its time, it was so well done. In Washington, it was the first film to be screened inside the White House, as I mentioned, but it was also screened afterward at a Washington hotel to 38 senators, 50 congressmen, members of the Supreme Court, and members of the Diplomatic Corps who cheered the film. The Los Angeles Times called it the greatest picture ever made. Actress Mary Pickford, one of the great actresses of the silent screen, credited Birth of a Nation with putting the motion picture industry on the map. She said, and in fact, many of the theaters, movie theaters, were built because of the popularity of the feature film launched by Birth of a Nation. In New York City, it was a hit. And in fact, it was such a, a big draw that it gave rise to a demand for Ku Klux Klan themed merch and, uh, and parties glorifying the Klan um, in the same way that Triumph of the Will would do that for the Nazi party later. Um, in my hometown, in fact, I can almost see the spot from here, 10 days prior to the time the film was released, William Simmons, who was the founder of the modern Ku Klux Klan, uh, an organization that was dying out at the turn of the century, went over to Stone Mountain and he burned a giant wooden cross on top of the mountain to publicize the film. Simmons and his fellow classmen, Klansmen dressed in white sheets and paraded down Peachtree Street, Atlanta, firing a rifle salute in front of the movie theater and handing out recruiting pamphlets. 
10 years later, these same men and their followers who had grown and grown marched on Washington. And you can Google pictures of KKK march down Pennsylvania Avenue. It was incredibly damaging at so many social levels and the effects that we are seeing last to this day. So all I can say with, uh, you know, is that the most influential film ever made, according to film critic Ty Burr in, in The Atlantic, has been one of the most dangerous. We're still living with the repercussions. Um, in 2019, uh, the, at, at Bowling Green State University in Kentucky, the Lillian Gish Theater was renamed. They took her name off because of her involvement in that single film. In 1999, the Directors Guild of America Award, its most prestigious award, the D.W. Griffith Award, was renamed. And this was a film that had been uh, that had been awarded to Akira Kurosawa, to Spielberg, to Hitchcock, to so many others. It was prestigious, but because of that one film, the film, the Directors Guild had to do something about it. So, um, you know. We can talk about a lot of different films that portrayed people the wrong way, that were unhistorical and damaging, but to find one that has had this incredible influence, owing mostly to its high level of cinematic art, made it and made it therefore one of the most effective pieces of propaganda in history, I think it's going to be hard to find a competitor with that. I think everyone in the room is applauding you. Uh, it is absolutely repulsive isn't it Holmes yeah I mean I, I wasn't familiar with it at all and you know when I first I sat down to watch it on Saturday and my first thoughts were thanks a bunch John you've just made set me a three-hour silent movie to watch I can't even can't even polish my Star Wars figures in the background I've got to properly watch this and then for alarm bells should have rung with the first two title cards you see first of all the first one is saying it's got D.W. Griffith's name all over it. And every title card throughout not only has his name, his signature in the corner, but his initials at the bottom. And the, but the first card says only D.W. Griffith's pictures have the name in the corners and the, and the initials at the bottom, which is like, you might as well say only films made by ra massive racists have D.G. at the bottom and signature at the corner. The next caption you see just bangs on about censorship. Um, and as my son pointed out last night, it might as well have said, I'm not racist. But and then you go into the film and then for 10 minutes or so, I thought it's a bit boring, but, you know, and it's shit by modern day film standards. But I quite like looking at the bits in the background and the props to see what things used to look like in the old days. And then then you get the first sort of the first sort of black American. And I was like, I'm sure that's somebody with a black face, but I couldn't really tell because I was watching it on my iPad and they were quite physically narrowed physically negatively stereotypes, you know, coming across as slightly simple and bulging eyes. And then it just got worse and worse and worse throughout. And then by the time you get to the sort of the black lawmakers bit, and then when you get to the end with the, with the clan charging on horseback, I, I was genuinely shocked and taken aback by this. And I don't think it should get a, a free pass or a semi-free pass or a partial free pass because of the technological innovations. Cinema was new. If he had invented it, someone else would have invented it shortly afterwards. Um, the film, the film of the Battle of the Somme, that was only done a year afterwards. A similar effect on that, and you see men dying in that and dead bodies. And that I found that less shocking than what I 
saw in this film. I thought I thought it was horrific. Simon, are you familiar with it? Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with it. So, <laughs> where to begin with this film? So, I absolutely love cinema. I I adore cinema. I love going to cinema. You're talking to somebody here who staggered through Abel Gantz's Napoleon and then went and saw it at the Barbican when they were doing it with the uh, the soundtrack. And, you know, I've watched this film. This film is a fucking amazing film, piece of art in the sense of, it's kind of like the first time you see Citizen Kane and you go, oh my God, it is as good as everybody says. It's got all these things in that they throw in. And in fact, you see... Up until then, you go, you've, you've seen all the tricks of the trade and then you watch a film like First of a Nation or you see a film like Citizen Kane and you go, these were the first people to do it. This was how it, how it first happened. And that must, have been, that must have been absolutely enthralling, you know, as, a, as somebody going into the cinema and watching this and being completely moved by what you by what you've seen technically and even now there's a there's a load of chases horse chases in this film the clan chasing after a uh, black guy and um god knows what he's filming it and because he's hand cranking a camera and he must be in the back of some sort of vehicle but also it's so sturdy and the way that the, the way that some of these chases are shot you can't you, you don't get to see that to the you don't get to see that in modern cinema today but at the but same time course, sorry Simon, but at the same time there's some really awful standard shots early on. There's one bit when the son walks over to the father and they're looking at something in the paper and the camera just drops. To like, you just see the, the, the end of their fingers just moving around. The, you know, so that's not, you know, that's not particularly innovative. I think that basically, I think it, it's such a new medium. He's kind of trying everything and actually what you're left with at the end of it is, you know, 60% of it works. And some of it, you kind of go, well, they probably didn't know how to do that then, or they didn't know how to do that, or whatever. So as a piece of cinema, it's, incre- it's, it's incredible. I was invited onto a podcast um, just before Christmas called Still Any Good, where you watch your childhood, your favourite childhood movie, and then you revisit it, and they like you to not have seen your mo- that movie for ages. And one of my favourite movies was Trading Places. And I went back and watched it, and I completely forgot that there's a scene in the train where um, Dan Aykroyd blacks up and Eddie Murphy is kind of doing the precursor for his Coming to America character. Yeah. But then also Denham Elliott comes in as an Irish um, priest with a hip flask in this ridiculously thick Irish accent as he's drunk. And um, Jamie Lee Curtis is playing um, a, a Danish girl in Lederhosen. Really tight, later Hosen. Anyway, um, but the the point I'm making, I watched that and I went back and I went, God, that is a problematic scene. But in the context of everything that's going on, I can't kind of cry foul on racism when kind of the Irish guy is sat there or the or the African, or, you know, it's being being awful to everyone. So am I giving this a pass? No, I'm not giving it a pass. Obviously, it's like really, really hateful, and the story is awful. And basically, this film did uh, for the clan what. Uh, Coca-Cola did for Santa Claus. The clan never dressed up in sheets or burnt crosses until Death of a Nation, but they thought, wow, that looks really good. Let's let's do that. So it was really not just a propaganda movie, but it also kind of inspired um, inspired everybody else. So, but then can you sort of yank art out of, by the scruff of the neck, out of its context and then judge it and completely condemn it? We can do that with... Um, gods and generals, because we know better. 
um, at this and, and the political climate and what was going on and everything else. This is a problematic film that reinforced certain stereotypes, but also it was a film that was completely reflecting the politics of its day. As a piece of, as a piece of cinema and art, you kind of got to give it an eight or nine out of 10. Um, the story itself, it's a bit all over, all over the place and there are kind of two, three subplots going on there, but the story is solid, but I don't want to be remembered as the guy who made this the winner. Thank <laughs> 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 you, Andrew. <laughs> well, no, no, I mean, you know, I mean, of, of all, all the stories he could tell to illustrate this new, these technological advances, he chose that one. He could have chosen any stories. He could have done a, a US, a, the US War of Independence and had a pop at the British again. I wouldn't have minded that. I'd have been fully on board with that. But, you know. Now, um, now it, Holmes, in, in, not in fairness, but to complete the story arc, there was such a backlash against Birth of a Nation uh, because, it, you know, at, at that point, the NAACP, the National Association for Advancement of Color Pe Colored People, had been formed. It was only six years old, and they picketed. There were riots um, in Boston, um, and there was there was a backlash. So it wasn't entirely something where you say, "Oh, everybody felt that way." Um, and then, but so the next year, he came out with another big budget feature film called Intolerance, and it was kind of an his apology for Birth of a Nation, and it goes through, uh, you know, long long span of history of people being oppressed. Um, and so that was sort of his, his, I'm sorry for it. Uh, so, so, you know, he, he ended up directing, I think it was something like 300 films or something, but that is the one that everybody's going to remember him for. Yeah. I think it's like what you're saying, Holmes, is the damage is done with that. Um, John, what you were saying, sorry, is that the damage yeah. is done. But I think so. And the, the, you know, to pick up on what the point that John just made, which is very helpful, but you know, the first film, he was free to choose whatever he wanted to. The second one, I'm guessing there was commercial pressures or moral pressures possibly put on him to make that one. There's the well, lawyer in the media lawyer in the room who knows what he would have been pressurising him to do. The, the, the thing about Intolerance, though, he was already planning it. Intolerance is a much bigger movie, which is why the sets stayed up on Sunset until the 50s. Yeah, the, the, a, a lot of Birth of a Nation is proving what he was wanting to do in Intolerance. Um, and, you know, the, you know, to be fair, he spends most of his time chasing Lillian Gish around trying to get into her pants. But, you know, what Griffiths is, is, is doing is that classic director thing of, I'm making a big movie, but my next one's going to be even bigger. Mm. Um, and you, 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 when you compare the two, everyone says, oh, Intolerance is his mere culpa. It's, it's, he used it as that. But the fact he was, you know, using Birth of a Nation, which was originally went out, there are still posters and archives of its original name, which is The Klansman. Yeah, right? that's a good point. It was it was actually called The Klansman in its initial release uh, to test audiences in early, uh, early 1915, uh, or maybe it was late 1914. He finished uh, filming in October and... Uh, and so you're right. It was it was it was interestingly based on a novel by Thomas Dixon, who was a classmate of Woodrow Wilson, which is partly why it got such traction at the White House. He did a very good job of marketing and knew the first place to go is the White House. Then you can tell everybody else that the president's seen it. 
and and then get it into uh, distribution after that. And uh, they had a different distribution uh, proce uh, process back then. But well, I think uh, if we go back to the point that John made earlier on, in that it's, it's negative effects can still be felt today. It wasn't like everyone who saw the first film had their prejudices reinforced and then went to see the second film and thought, oh, oh we were wrong to have this prejudice. Oh, we you're right, absolutely. But I think one of the, the best uses of it as a teaching aid was in Spike Lee's Black Klansman. So he juxtaposes the Klan watching it and being all rowdy with Harry Belafonte telling the story of a lynching. And it's cutting back and forth, but yeah. over the whole thing, you've got Harry Belafonte in that incredible voice talking about um, um, the the town that they destroyed um, in 1920. Uh, Tulsa. Um, yeah, Tulsa. Yeah. And it's it's possibly the best part of that movie, which is a very good movie on itself, but the way that's played with cutting back to Birth of a Nation and the, what those supposedly modern people were reacting to, I think is absolutely brilliantly done to show what the power of that film still has, despite its technical achievements. That's, that's true. And as shocking as we might look back at it as being, um, it was released in the same century that I think all of us were born. So. There's that. Perhaps even more disturbing. Right, we have plumbed down to the depths of some really fucking disturbing shit that's come across in historical films. Uh, but let's lighten it up again now, because we've got three left to go, and all three of them are just turds. They are absolutely shocking. I'm going to go next to Marcus, because everyone must have been ex expecting this one all night. Marcus. <laughs> yeah, so this is... This is one that should be really good on paper. It's a huge budget film with a brilliant cast um, for every from Alec Baldwin to uh, Josh Hartnett. It, it should be really good. And we're going back to what we said right at the beginning, the American flag waving, which we just cannot swallow. So it's Pearl Harbor. No, you. So not only is the title wrong from the beginning, just because they like to murder our language. This really drills down into the Hollywood psyche, that if they wave the flag enough in everyone's faces, we're going to feel sorry for them. And I, I feel like the stipulation should be tonight was bad movie, bad history. And overall, this film, which should be really good movie, just isn't. It's just under three hours long. And I know Holmes felt that with some sorrow when he was watching it. And it just feels like one of these films that goes on and on. You start off with these two boys with their crop dusting father. Crop dusting wasn't basically invented for another year after this film was set. So that's a historical inaccuracy. Then these two rednecks, they, they join the Army Air Force as officers. I don't know how they both get in having like failed their education, but we'll skip over that. Vaccine era, one of them, the nurse, Kate, Kate um, Blanchett gives them two doses of this vaccine. Brilliant. That's, that's obviously going to happen. And then they end up both falling in love with the same girl. And it just is a war movie shoehorn like a bad clay around a love story that goes on and on and on. Nobody cares about the love story by the end of the film. Somehow, um, 
Ben Affleck goes off to fight in the Battle of Britain, despite the fact that no serving US Air Force personnel actually fought in the Battle of Britain. But don't worry, boys, they saved our ass in World War Two. All seven uh, Eagle Squadron pilots who actually saved our ass in World War Two, but completely ignoring all of the Czechs, all the Poles, all the Free French, the South Africans, the Palestinians, and basically all the Canadians uh, who, who and the Irish. And actually, let's face it, the British, who actually fought and died in it. But we basically just got to thank the Americans because all seven of them, one of whom happened to be Ben Affleck, really saved us. He almost dies in the sea. Unfortunately, his character, who's just really boring, um, survives and comes back to Pearl Harbor, where they fly around in an aerial battle scenes, so like shoot up a hospital that didn't really happen, they get shot down out of a tower that didn't really happen, and frankly, the uh, the aerial scenes from bed knobs and broomsticks was more exciting than this battle scene. By the end of it, you're thinking that all of these 1970s, 1980s American battleships that have been shot up because they haven't been invented, uh, but you see them, you start to not really care, except for the fact that they really do um, give you very long, obsessing shots of a drowning uh, seaman that is pretty disturbing, but there's some historical accuracy in that, fortunately, until you get to long quotes from uh, the, the Japanese admirals and the US presidents, most of which didn't happen, some of which are taken from the fantastic film Tora Tora Tora, but have no basis in history, like we've woken up a sleeping giant, and they feel like they've just kind of seen too many war films, and they know what's going to make a good war film. Right, Pearl Harbor's over. Historic inaccuracies are almost done. We've seen loads of 1970s warships sunk. No, it's okay. These fighter pilots, who are apparently ace fighter pilots, because they learned in the crop duster before crop dusters were invented, are suddenly now going to learn to fight a bomber mission over Japan, which did happen, but nothing like in the movie. And none of them were fighter pilots. So that happens. Then they are shot down, and then somehow they end up in a small arms rifle battle running through the Chinese countryside, which just did not happen. It's one of these films that limps on and on. Every time that you uh, feel like it's going to end, it continues with shoehorn history, exaggerated storylines. But don't worry, at the end, there's still the love story. And uh, you even get Kate Beckinsale going, oh, for us, America, the world started at Pearl Harbor. Of course it did. But for us, it's been going on for two years. So get on with the story. Pearl Harbor, just a terrible movie. So my favourite, favourite line in that film is where she... So, no, but you're missing with the love story that she doesn't even love Josh Hartnett. She's just got no one left to bang her after Ben Affleck supposedly dies, but not really. So she starts copping hold of his best mate. And then when, mate. when he comes back, she says, <clears throat> I didn't even know I was pregnant till the day you've got back. So she's got knocked up by his best mate. So she clearly didn't fucking love him that much because he's only been dead for five minutes. And do you know what? Not even going to the premiere of this and meeting Josh Hartnett and like having him stand a foot away from me and leering at him saved this fucking film for me. It was awful. At that point, I was just, I it actually, Josh Hartnett pretty much gave up acting just after Pearl Harbor and went back to live in Minnesota because he was so ashamed and didn't start acting again for several years because he hated the fact that he had become basically baby Ben Affleck and was just, this is what was required of him as an actor. That's how bad this film was. Holmes, you found it excruciating, didn't you? 
Actually, of all the ones I've seen, I, I didn't think it was that bad. I thought it was interesting, Marcus, you know, with his um, close eye for detail, he kept referring to Kate Blanchett instead of Kate Beckinsale. <laughs> <laughs> Kiss me, Kate. I mean, it, it was another one that didn't need to be three hours long. There were a number of three-hour-plus ones that I must thank you all for just throwing my way. Um, it's all right. I mean... Most people, it's too long, as I said, but the depiction of the destruction of Pearl Harbor is quite well done. Yeah, but that's only because all of those decent nifty camera angles are just robbed from Tora, 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 like the following the aerial bomb down from the aeroplane and everything, all that stuff where you think, wow, that's really fucking good, the way that's shot, nicked. It's still with the iOS, um, what was slightly odd is that for the first quarter, it tried to be a bit of a comedy. It was a slightly distasteful thing of let's all laugh at the guy with the stutter, you know, for a while, which seemed to be acceptable back in the day. And then they milk injections by uh, Kate Blanchett, according to Marcus, into buttocks far more than they need to <laughs> in, in that scene, which there's no real need for that. Um, but I find by the time you got the Doolittle Raid, and I get your point about the historical inaccuracies, but it did happen. You know, I mean, the Chinese firefight might not have happened, but the actual raid is it's incredibly rave. It's probably a bit pointless in the general scheme. No, of it's just war. one of those things. I don't believe that anybody from Pearl Harbor flew, and it was a big thing that actually I didn't get onto that was picked up by um, veterans of both the Doolittle Raid and Pearl Harbor. They were quite offended by it. But the fact they did it is a quite an impressive, if ultimately pointless, story. Josh Hartnett looks pleased to die at the end of that film. Have her, have the kid, I'm done. I cannot take any more of this script. And actually, there's a reoccurring theme because, Simon, you're the film boffin. Randall Wallace, he wrote Braveheart, right? Yeah. And he wrote, wrote Pearl Harbor. So there's a few scripts of his eking their way into this tonight. Uh, Buggy's up with Michael Bay a lot, doesn't he? Oh, right. look, Chris is awake. <laughs> yeah, Chris has woken up, yeah. You're right, Chris. It's still Thursday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I just wanted to mention that Randall Wallace is coming up a lot because I'm really bitter that as a writer he's actually made a living and he's terrible. We Were Soldiers wasn't that bad. Oh, come on. Oh, yeah, but that was heavily based on the original text, which wasn't by him. And it didn't involve any brick bashing. Simon, what did you make of Pearl Harbor? So Pearl Harbor, it's interesting. It's interesting, actually. I've only seen it twice. Um... And I, uh, I nearly went to the premiere with you to, uh, to actually to Hawaii. They had the premiere in Hawaii, didn't they? Oh, no, Maybe. I went to the London one. Oh, okay. So I was still poor, man. I was, I was poor and shit. There was a huge premiere in Hawaii. It cost $5 million. And they, actually was, had they, it on... they all linked hands over the wreck of the Arizona, didn't they? Yeah, and I think they had it on, a, um, on an aircraft carrier or something. And there were veterans there and everything else and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, this film, at the, at the time, I think they kept on saying this is the most expensive film ever made. This is the most expensive. Well, it so was it the gone... successor to Titanic, wasn't it? It was a couple of years later and it was the next That's Titanic, it. which is why Ben Affleck hilariously did what James Cameron did and didn't take a wage. He said he'd take a cut from the film and then it made fuck all. So at least Ben Affleck didn't get paid. <laughs> and if there's a, there's one good thing about that. Now, so, um, Pearl Harbor, I, um, it's unlike James Cameron's Titanic. It's interesting you bring up, uh, Titanic. 
James Cameron can write a really good story. The Abyss is a really good story. Aliens is a really good story. Terminator 2, Judgment Day and Terminator are really good stories. And he's able to eke a great story out of Titanic, as I said before, right at the beginning, where we all know what's going to happen. He's still able to get some sort of dramatic, some dramatic sort of, he's able to get some cachet out of it. And I think that's a mark of a good filmmaker. With Pearl Harbor, we kind of all know what's going to happen, but we don't really know what happened afterwards. And, you know, it's, it's um, when was it? Was it January, a day that will live forever in infamy that I can't remember a date? That was, so it's, is it 5th or 6th of January? December 7th. December 7th. December 7th. December 41. So, um, and it's really interesting. I think there's been quite a lot of stuff about Pearl Harbor afterwards about, you know, was this something that... Um, uh, the Americans and Churchill knew was going to happen and they let it happen because it was an easy way for the Americans to enter the war. Obviously, it's not going to touch on that because it's Michael Bay and we can have people invest sweating and stuff. Um, as a piece of film, as a piece of cinema and the look of it, I've um, put in the chat that uh, thing about Bayhem. Nobody makes this kind of cinema like Michael Bay and the actual attack itself, starting from when the um, Japanese um, uh, planes come over and you can see everybody sort of watching them and everything else. The attack itself, that, that is a really good 25 minutes of cinema. I really love it. I mean, that, it. his mantra is bleach everyone's teeth and blow shit up. Yeah. Yeah, whilst moving the camera, whilst moving the camera in different ways. Yeah, I mean, he uses exactly the same camera sweeps in Armageddon, exactly yeah. the same on Liv Tyler that he uses on Kate Beckinsale. And you know something? I am there Which for is- it. I'm there for those kind of, this huge, he comes, you know, they come out, they see the planes coming over, there's a kid running along the, the you know, the Michael Bay shoots everything at different times, so sometimes there's a sunset when something's happening in the morning. He doesn't give a shit about any of that, he just wants the best shot. And I think that the actual... Um, the actual attack on Pearl Harbor is great. The rest of it is complete and utter tosh. I do not care about Josh Hartnett. I do not care about, um, it could have been Kate Blanchett or Kate Beckinsale. Who gives a fuck? I, I don't care. Josh Hartnett's character because he's literally just been used by a skank, but not that much. I'm not that bothered. Well, yeah, I mean, also, I mean the, the, the other issue I have, and I think I raised this on the, on the best film podcast that we did is that, there's a lot of films like this, which are sort of sort of blokey films, really. Arguably, arguably even the ti- Titanic, the story of the Titanic is a blokey film. But they they have to always, you see it in Braveheart, we saw it in The Patriot, they have to put in like a romance element. So it's sort of like, you know, well, we've got to put something in, you know, to try and get the ladies along to the cinema or for the ladies that are dragged along by their blokes to go and see this. And a lot of these stories are quite good enough without having these sort of, Highly fictionalized and fabricated romance elements. Yeah. The story yeah. in the Enemy at the Gate was like that. Yeah. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Terrifyingly, yeah. yes, yeah. Randall Wallace wrote Braveheart and he wrote this and he wrote and directed The Man in the Iron Mask with Leonardo DiCaprio. And I shit you not, this is terrifying. He's currently working with Mel Gibson on the sequel to The Passion of the Christ. Whoa. I believe that story has a pretty defined ending. No, yeah. no, no. It's a second coming. Of the Christ. Jim Caviezel's coming back for more. Clive, did you say it's called the second coming? We've done yep. Cal- Caligula. <laughs> 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 right, okay, guys, we have got two left. We've got me and we've got Charlie. Charlie, I'm going to let you go first because you picked an absolute fucking stinker. And we're going to Judas, aren't we? Oh, yes, we are. Um, I'm reminded with this film of the best film review that I ever read, which was for Judge Dredd. And the review was, 
looks good, smells of we. And <laughs> that has stayed with me for years. So The Other Bolin Girl was released in UK cinemas in 2008. And boy, was I excited. I thoroughly enjoyed Philippa Gregory's book of the same name because I'm a grown up and understand the difference between historical fiction and accepted historical fact. And the trailers lured me in to what promised to be a lavish Hollywood treatment of the source material. I couldn't have been much more disappointed if I was trying. Having forced myself to rewatch this absolute ham sandwich of a film today, so I would be, you know, have it all fresh in my mind. I'm struggling to think of a worse film, let alone a worse supposedly historical film. Natalie Portman as Anne Boleyn and Scarlett Johansson as her previously forgotten sister Mary. How delightful. How perfectly cast from the book. Mary is all soft and blonde and naive against Anne's hard, dark schema. And those costumes, glorious. I've seen them in exhibitions. They're exquisite. Oh, my goodness. Then there's the supporting cast. The first players we see are Mark Rylance and Kristen Scott Thomas. Dame Kristen Scott Thomas. Then there's Cumberbatch, Redmayne. Hang on, are these all Oscar winners and nominees? This has got to be good, right? No, wait, what? They've cast Eric Banner as famously Ginger Henry VIII. Perhaps not great physical casting there, but surely the budget could stretch to a wig and a beard. No? Okay, right, brunette Tudor. I suppose my disbelief can suspend itself so far. And I do want to be fair to the film. Many of the more contentious historical inaccuracies do come from Philippa Gregory's book. For example, Mary Boleyn was more likely to have been the elder of the sisters, but she's been written as the younger. We don't know this for sure because, you know, who bothered to mark down when girls were born? It's not really that important. Her time spent in the French court as a child has been overlooked, as have the rumours that she was the French king's lover, hence why Henry chased her, because he'd heard she was good to go. All of this is glossed over to make Mary the innocent to play against her sister, who is portrayed as calculating and ambitious. It's an interesting reading of Anne Boleyn. Okay, fair play, I like that as a reading of her. Gregory also uses as a major plot point in her novel the accusation that Anne later faced of committing incest with her brother to ask a very valid question of if you are desperate enough to conceive and you didn't want to pop out an heir who looked like another man, who could you absolutely trust in that particular horrific situation? Icky, yes, But in fairness to the Berlin kids, and I'm really trying to be fair to this as much as I possibly can, they they hadn't grown up playing together in the fields as they're depicted in the film. Siblings might never really meet until at court. So, you know, this could happen. It would be more like sleeping with your long lost brother who you hadn't seen. Okay, it's still really, really gross. But the film takes liberties that I can neither fathom nor defend. I remember spending the first 45 minutes or so thinking Cardinal Wolsey's going to show up any minute now. And he never does. He's mentioned in passing maybe once or twice. Ditto Thomas Cromwell. Now, for anybody who who knows Tudor history of this period, you can't leave out Cardinal Wolsey and Thomas Cromwell. They are the big players behind everything that's going on at court. 
Gregory's book was adapted for the screen by one Peter Morgan, he of the Queen and the Crown fame, and he confessed to reading the book and then throwing it away. The film is shamelessly based on, but really, really loosely upon the source material, leaving out a major player like Wolsey or Cromwell to anyone with a passing knowledge of this period is absolutely bizarre. But then it gets more bizarre. So enraged with having to divorce his wife, Henry rapes Anne and she conceives Elizabeth. Okay, a bit unnecessary. Um, and from the materials that we do have, from the contemporary reports we do have, completely inaccurate, completely wrong, and not in the book at all. So this is something that they thought, do you know what will make a really good movie? Let's have Henry VIII rape Anne Boleyn. Okay. What irritates me so much about this whole thing is that the written source is so much better. The story is better. The history is even better than that. And I'm not throwing shade at Philippa Gregory in any way because I adore her work. I've been to see her speak. I've even gone so far as to ask her to write about the women of the Stuart courts. She told me it wasn't her area of interest. She signed my book. I went off and started writing my own. She's an inspiration to me. I believe that historical fiction is very important when we're exploring the lives of women and other marginalised people where we don't have things like letters, we don't have records, we have nothing of their lives remaining save the fact that they lived and that they were the daughter of, the wife of, the mother of. And a novelist can explore questions that the history throws up, such as this issue of incest. We know Anne was accused of it, but no one can ever know truly whether or not she actually did it. With all this leeway that I'm giving, with all of this suspension of my disbelief, all my willingness to explore a theory about a historical figure that can in no way be proven even by the loftiest historian, why then is the other Bolin girl such a turkey? The script's clunky, performances are trite, the history's appalling, and watching it today, I could only beg for someone to cut off Anne's head and put me out of my misery. Well done. Holmes hated this, didn't you? I, I did. And this was one of the first ones that I watched. So I wasn't perhaps as jaded as I was by the time <laughs> I watched some of the other ones. I mean, on, on paper, the cast is good. It looks really good. It's amazing. Peter Morgan has done some amazing things. The Crown, and I really love the Damn United that he did. I even like Rush, even though I, Rush, even though I hate Formula One. <laughs> this was all, I mean, I was slightly... Slightly worried because I hate Henry VIII, as I've already said. He was just like a spoiled man-child, man-child yeah. undergoing a midlife crisis. And the decisions he made affected our country for hundreds and hundreds of years, even though they weren't driven by any particular philosophy. But it was really, really dreary. It was just boring. I, I, I was giving it my full attention. It was one of the first ones I watched. But like words were coming out of my telly and just bouncing off my face. They weren't going in. So it made it made it really hard to follow. I mean, I watched it in two bits because at one point I was so bored I had to turn over and watch Arsenal West Brom. That's how fucking bored I was. It was, yeah. <laughs> it was terrible. And then the Eric Banner point you mentioned is, is so true in that you're sl- you, it's boring, you're not really following it, and then you're like, why is Eric Banner turned up dressed <laughs> Henry VIII? It's not his acting performance or anything. It's just, he just doesn't look right in the outfit. He's too tall, he's too thin. It's just, it's just... It's just odd. I mean, I think the problem that we've seen with a number of the ones like these tonight, like Sense and Sensibility and 
Shakespeare in love. And I think they think if they've got a bit of source material and they chuck a load of money at it, that's it, job done. It'll be brilliant. And I think, you know, there are films that are done, period films that can be done well. Elizabeth is quite good, both of those. The, um, oh, the second happen. one's terrible. That's oh, yeah. the first one, the darkness. The first of one's brilliant. I can even forgive Eric Cantona in the first one. <laughs> I still think both of them are better than this. And I think one of the problems is as well is that they, they do all those things that I've just said and think they've done enough. But I think you need to have love for the subjects as well. If anyone saw the Armando Iannucci, David Copperfield film, you can tell he loves that. And it shines, yeah. it comes off like every shot. And I don't think these have that. I think there's an element these days of studios thinking we've got the right, we've got the right person writing the script. We've got the right people on board. We've chucked loads of money at it. It can't fail. Whereas actually, you know, I think people start are now are looking to make films purely in terms of profit terms rather than pieces of art that people want to go and see. <laughs> Welcome to Hollywood home. Sorry, that's not, that's not <laughs> new. Apparently Philippa Gregory has now said that she doesn't want any more of her books to be um, translated to the screen after her experience with the other Berlin girl. And then with later on the white princess, which they made this awful, series of because they did the white queen the bbc did the white queen and they did a brilliant job of it i mean again you've got to condense i think they've condensed three books down into a into a series but they did it with love and it was very it was they did it well um i mean the, the thing with hollywood though is no film is guaranteed to be a hit and we've seen over the last you've seen over some films look like surefire hits and they're failures so why not set out and try and make something decent that people are just going to like each time Simon, yeah, this um, I've seen this film, and um, this film it's really dull. It kind of for so much that it's supposed to happen, or so much that is happening in this film, it doesn't feel like anything happens in this film, and it sort of feels like a film that's been made by consensus in the sense of um, uh, you've got like uh, these two beautiful. Beautiful women, Scarlett Johansson, the camera loves Scarlett Johansson. And if you remember the girl with the pearl earring, Scarlett Johansson looks good in period costumes. She looks good in, she looks good in, it, in anything. Simon, stop talking. Stop talking about Scarlett Johansson. Just stop talking. <laughs> um, um, uh, so, um, you know, the you other kind of... Girl. <laughs> Sorry? The other Berlin girl, that's where you were. That's where I was, yes, indeed. Go back to Scarlett. <laughs> Um, I think that the do you remember they did that Henry VIII with Ray Winston and you just go <laughs> that's an idea that you talk about in the pub you don't go and do it that's how I sort of fe felt about um, about this film is that you you kind of know that um, all the elements are there for a great story but then it's a bit like um, uh, when uh, the uh, Comic Strip Presents did uh, Strike and they were sort of, you know, casting Charles Bronson as Ken uh, Livingston and Al Pacino as Arthur Scargill and stuff like that. That's what this film is like. It's kind of just like, well, we'll get Peter Morgan, he can do the script, and we'll get Scully Johansson, we'll get Eric Banner. And, um... Well, the hilarious thing is, Natalie Portman literally admitted that she clawed people's eyes out to get this part, and it seems to be like a double brain fart because she had that and Thor straight after the other, where but everyone was like, I thought she was a serious actress. But on, but on paper, for an American actress, you can do the, you can have the, um, you can go and see that woman who teaches everybody to speak in an English accent. You know, he did Gwyneth Paltrow and Sliding Doors and Shakespeare in Love. You can wear great costumes. 
the academy loves historical uh, historical things and the americans love the british history this is kind of like you know this is oscars ahoy really if you get it right but i think andrew i think andrew really is what hits the nail on the head nobody nobody's doing this because they're passionate about the source material that are passionate about the history and they're passionate about the book and as such it's it's not even a great looking turkey it's just kind of a soulless a soulless turkey we come down to the actual the, the film i don't really remember anything about the film looking this film could look like any other film nothing about the film i remember gradually. eric banner gets his arse out okay <laughs> <laughs> and, and I thought, there's no way that's Henry VIII's arse. I know <laughs> Henry VIII's arse when I see it. And it's also largely shot in Ely Cathedral, which everyone should visit because it's always. It's Wait, what? Every... He gets his arse out in Ely Cathedral? <laughs> everyone gets their arse out in Ely Cathedral. <laughs> something we do. Um, but it, it always doubles for Westminster Abbey in any any sort of costume drama it's the most beautiful beautiful place you should go and see I think it. it's always going to you point the camera at you point the com- camera at some of our historical buildings and you're always going to have something that looks good on camera but technically and everything else this is just meh and then the performances and everything else and the the, the script and the dramatic there's nothing there um historical inaccuracies i guess you kind of do you blame the film from that when the source material itself um just for the point of the yeah the difference with that was is that the the source material took liberties but it was faithful to the history so right. for example things like that these big big characters who were left out who are major political players for some reason the film thought they weren't needed but in the book of course they're there where the book takes um takes liberties is in things like we don't know if they committed incest so i'm going to leave that as this real open open question it's never it's not described in the book it doesn't actually happen in the book but it's very heavily implied that she may have been that desperate that she did it and it makes you think well you know okay that that's plausible so also, i mean I, I i don't really know the history that well but it seemed to be um, it seemed to be suggesting in the film that that the lead, the sort of breaking with Rome was almost Anne Boleyn's idea and she pushed him into it, which I was like, surely given the time yeah. that men involved in this decision, you know. Well, she goes full Lady Macbeth. She's like, you know what you should do? Here's an idea that I've not read anywhere else in Europe. You should break with Rome and that'll do it. And it's just, it's entirely bizarre. Okay. Because the history is so good. It's so interesting and it's so, it's so rich why do you need to write a crap film? And it's with, you've got actors of this caliber and, and, you know, all the beautiful sets and everything looking so good. You have to blame Peter Morgan for this. It has to be his fault that he did not adapt that book well enough to make a compelling film. Scarlett Scarlett Johansson, I feel sorry for, if only someone was on hand to comfort her. Oh, I know. She probably could have done with a hug. Apparently Mark Rylance was furious. Apparently he was like stomping around on sex. He was like, why am I making this shit? This is right, so well, bad. On that note, let's talk about okay. Ben Miller. 
because this is the last one. No, Matt, it's not from hell because do you know what? I looked at from hell and I that film and it's shit. It is really shit. You talk about taking liberties with history. Not only is it badly acted, it doesn't just take liberties with history. It shits all over it. Uh, it's as if Jack the Ripper wasn't quite exciting enough for the people that made it. But no, I actually have gone a different way because I discovered like no one's been to a cinema. We're talking about films. When was the last time anyone set foot inside a cinema? There are no cinemas anymore. What do we have? We have Netflix. And what has Netflix given us in the last few weeks? It's given me a headache. That's what, right? I am going to, because this isn't a film. This is eight hours of agony. The brain behind what I'm about to crap all over is a big brain. It's Shonda Rhimes. I'm loathe to say anything bad about the woman who gave me Grey's Anatomy and Christina Yang. When I was a young, impressionable, and miserable girl working in a bar, she gave me a character who didn't give a damn if she was pretty or liked by the boys, who knew what she wanted and went out to get it, trampled everyone in her way, and even wore a fucking nappy to work if it got her to her head. Christina taught me that girls who don't fit the mould are the ones that win. She taught me I was not, I, I was not the only sarcastic brain and cynical one out there and that I should own it. She taught me, I'm pretty sure, how to do open heart surgery if the need ever arises and she taught me how to dance it out. But Donda also gave us How to Get Away with Murder which deserves a whole rant of its own and Scandal which showed much promise but then, well, Scandal indeed where a political message trumped all semblance of believable television where in the act of proving, in inverted commas that a black woman could run Washington she was simultaneously having the same woman turn to mush every time the rich, powerful white man snapped his fingers we had a plot that looked like it had been packaged up dropped from a great height peed on by an angry tramp then his dog, then set on fire before it was finally delivered to the hands of the actors who were supposed to make it work. And Bridgerton, I'm afraid, is more of the same. Shonda, girl, you've let us all down. What can this television giant give us, girls? She can give us eight hours of sexist crap that would see Emmeline Pankhurst roll over in her grave and drown in her own vomit. That's what. There's the message, it has a message, that ethnic minorities can have lead roles in period pieces if the showrunner is a big enough deal. Were it not for the novelty of having persons of colour, sorry, one colour because this act only grinds one way, in leading roles in a costume drama, along with gratuitous and pretty unconvincing shagging at every turn, this would have been blissfully anonymous. As it is, my eyes have barely stopped bleeding. As a historical representation, it is woeful. It's not just lazy, it's bone idle. Someone in an office went, let's do Jane Austen. People love that shit. And someone else went, yeah, but let's add sex and minorities. And their end of any allusion to the fact that this was set at the turn of the 19th century, other than a lack of cars and smartphones. There's not a single mention of any history. Nelson, no. That pesky little fella Napoleon. No, because then, you know, someone behind this drudgery might have actually had to pick up a book. It's not just lazy. It's sexist. Daphne is such a sap that she needs a man to tell her how to flick her bean. I'm not joking. And her maid to tell her how babies are made. Women in this nightmare reality are there to look pretty and spawn. They have a worse lot 
than in actual historical reality. And yet this is being touted as progressive, which if you were creating a better world, you might have wanted to address at least that in some part. These women are literally defined by what male characters can afford to buy for them and how they intend to find one of these men. They've created a world where a girl can't even go for a breather in the garden for risk of bumping into a perfectly innocent penis fully clothed and having herself ruined. Now that's a message and a half for the girls. But whatever, it's about entertainment, right? The plot, Jesus wept. So the first third of this revolves around the nonsensical idea that Daphne and Simon, two more uninspiring names you could not have thought of for a period drama, Simon, for a period drama, uh, they have to pretend to be in love. Seriously, there's no justification for it at all. As far as she's concerned, it's to make other men notice her, right? And he's supposed to spend his entire life out of the country ignoring his responsibilities. So why he should suddenly feel the need for this charade isn't clear anyway. Anyway, they do fall in love. Imagine my surprise. I've lived with this plot line before. I could probably have lived with it again. So then these two people are forced into marriage by stumbling across each other in the garden, at which point, despite being madly in love, they are angry at each other for like two episodes more of drudgery. Then basically the plot is done with half the episodes left to go because they're married. So we launch into this utter bore fest about a poor little rich boy and is agonising about whether to pull out or not. No, I'm not joking. He tells her he can't have kids, which despite it being the 18th century or 19th century, we're given no justification for. I, for one, assumed his knob had been severed in a hideous accident until the gratuitous shagging started. No, it just turns out that he didn't like his dad, who left him the title and the infinite money and all the other trappings of wealth, and had sworn that the line would die with him. Cue raging, stropping and hair pulling when Daphne finds out from her presumably slutty, seeing as every woman without a title in this dross, made, uh, who tells her how sex is supposed to end. This lasts for three episodes. They're still madly in love, but they're going to live apart because, well, because they're all signed up for eight episodes and we need to string this out a bit longer. And then randomly before the end credits, while well, we jump forward nine months and she has a baby. Wait, what? Were they hoping for a 12 episode order and they just dumped the others in the bin? Don't even get me started on the side plot. Polly Walker, I love her. Trust into a corset and panicking about where her dress allowance is coming from. There's an array of blokes with ever more extravagant quiffs shagging their way around London, variously moaning about the burdens of being disgustingly rich and about the fact that life might throw up a tiresome responsibility or two in exchange and constitute an interruption to their philandering. But it gets worse. Even as a piece of alternate history, it is shallower than tooting Lido in a drought. In fact, it's a racially insulting shit show. Asian lives don't matter, brown lives don't matter, which as a brown person is really beginning to get my goat across the board. For the purposes of this, we're supposed to believe that George III's queen was the fairest skinned black lady you've ever seen in your life. And that instantly race barriers then melted away and Britain is now a multicultural society. To make this work, all the actual minorities that could have been portrayed here have just been deleted from history because it makes a better picture on screen. You honestly would have just been better off not referencing anyone's skin colour in this at all because it would just be as bland as everything else and nobody really cares and it would have been fine. But because they've made this minimal effort, 
is wasted explaining this seismic change concerns how the characters are going to make sure that nobody takes this power away from them again. That's literally the only reference to it, which is what makes it so insulting. Wrapped in silks and sipping champagne, obsessing over nonsensical gossip magazine, they're not in the least bit concerned for anyone else. At no point does any one of them mention, let alone express any distaste for, you know, the slave trade, which is still going on at this moment. You'd think if you were a black man and a duke in 1804, you might have at least wagged a finger in the general direction of the Atlantic in between social functions. But let's go below stairs. Any woman who isn't part of the aristocracy in this farce is a promiscuous slutbag, shoehorned into the plot vagina first, be it the filthy opera singer looking for a meal ticket or the pregnant wench trying to con a potential husband before her baby bump begins to show. Sorry, I'm so angry. It takes about six episodes before you otherwise see a representation of an actual poor person. And then they may as well have been shat out of a UFO carriage driven by Elvis and pulled by the Loch Ness Monster for how they are regarded by the main characters. Yes, assholes, these people all over your land work their fingers to the bone so that you might fund the party season. They don't like you. Join the dots. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Bridgerton, television progress indeed, a lazy, sexist, mildly racist, elitist, intellectually insulting, shallow clusterfuck of epic proportions, hiding behind expensive outfits, shiny lights and string arrangements of Taylor Swift songs. A clusterfuck that rewrote history and still cast the fat ginger girl as the one who would die without ever knowing the touch of a man. She does, at least, have the last laugh over all the other fuckbags even if she's going to die shriveled, unattractive and alone. She was the single person in it with any remotely endearing quality, apart from Ben Miller, who lurked in the background looking like he wanted to kill himself and his agent, abort, <laughs> like the plague. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done, <Ralph. laughs> Well done. Home. Alex, Alex, why did you watch more than the first 10 minutes? Because I watched, I was, I was watching it the exact same night as Matt was watching it with his wife. And we were like, he was 10 minutes ahead of me. And I was like, are you fucking serious? And he was like, yeah, I'm serious. What the fuck? Oh my God. And we text each other. And then I realized I was going to do this. And I was like, if I'm going to rip this apart, I'm going to fucking eviscerate it. And for that, I need to sit through it so that I can truly go on a mission to make sure that nobody watches this piece of shit. We, we never finished it. No. I mean, I mean uh, to, be, to be fair, you can tell... <laughs> it's a bit like a leader. You've put a lot of effort into that, so you must really hate it. Yes, I do. I watched it, and I was like, as a, an ethnic minority, I'm fucking insulted, um, and Shonda Rhimes should know better. As a woman, I'm insulted that everybody without money in it is just a whore out to get some. Um, I just, on so many levels, it is just an insult. I mean, your 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 initial choice was from hell, which, yeah. out of loyalty, I watched first. Um, <laughs> oh. um, so I will say, I'll briefly gloss over. I thought the first half was terrible. It was like uh, amateur dramatic Victorian EastEnders with people just going, "Just wet my whistle before I go back out on the game." That type of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the bit where Heather Graham started skipping around the Irish hills at the end that I literally got up in the cinema. I went, "Fuck this shit," and walked out. Yeah. The second half was investigating it. That was the last shot. I know. I was like, I was. I'm not. I know there's only five seconds left. That's it. I'm not. I'm leaving now. I want everyone to see me. Get up. 
I was on a date and it was kind of like I didn't want to look like a weirdo. But I got up. Shouting, Fuck this shit as it goes the credits start rolling. <laughs> <laughs> but the second half I didn't think was that bad. And then you told me yesterday you told me a couple of days ago that I had to watch this. So I've watched an episode and a half and I hated it. I yeah, really it. That's it. about how long Matt lasted, even out of fealty to his wife. He couldn't. Yeah. I mean, it was. Oh, no, in my wife's defence, who stood here next to me listening to you. Um, Hi, Wendy. No, she's she, she's gone now. She just <laughs> nodded and went good night. Um, <laughs> it, it it we got about three episodes in before the the marital rape scene, and then we decided that was probably enough. Yeah. It just like it was like someone sat around, and because Shonda Shonda, she can get anything made she wants, and she went, "I just want to have a, a multi-ethnic period drama." That's a really cool idea. As a brown girl who did musical theatre, I'd love someone to throw off the shackles and go, "Fuck what colour skin you are, let's just have fun." But then they started trying to explain why there were black people in nice clothes. There's one token Asian bird. One. As in, like we have become the token now, the Asian people. We're the, we're the we're the one in the corner. But home, sorry, I interrupted. No, I mean I think when neutral casting works, it's work. You know, David Copperfield, etc. It, it's it's the way forward. But I mean, I thought this was I thought it was another dreary costume drama. It was slightly more irritating because it was it thought it was a lot cleverer than it actually was. I mean, it looks more like again, it's a bit. But like I literally hated everyone I was supposed to feel sorry for. I hated the pregnant slut bag. I hated the opera singer who was just in love with the rich guy. I hated Daphne. I hated Simon, who's just a privileged fuck, uh, who's like a multi-millionaire. In that they filmed it, I think, Cliveden, didn't they? Which is, I'm sorry, if that's your house, stop bitching about your parents. I'm sorry, look at what they left you. <laughs> it goes back to the argument I made before that they think if they chuck enough money at it, it's good. So they got the rights to the book and everything else. And actually, I, it, it, I don't even think it looks all right. It looks sort of rubbish, slightly low-level CGI'd in places. I just thought, and it was so pleased with itself. I And it was the last thing that I saw, and I was incredibly jaded by that. But I just thought, fuck it, every five minutes whilst I was watching it. Yeah, I did. I, I sat there and I did. I said to you, if you had no time, just watch 10 minutes because that would be enough to back up my argument. Simon, have you watched any of it? Um, I have seen some of it. Um, there's uh, was a very useful um, internet site that pulled together some highlights reels that I watched. Um, uh, and this seems to be, I would actually uh, rename this Eat Out to Help Out from what I saw. Um, it's, <laughs> uh, it's, it's full on, isn't it? Really is. But, you know, fit fit guy, uh, fit black guy uh, with a great body called Simon um, going down on everybody. What's not to like? Um, no, I, so I, I sat down and watched a couple of, um, couple, no, a couple of minutes. No, I kind of, I think I've seen about four halves because I've gone into the other room and gone, is this still going? And um, Mrs. London goes, yeah, there's eight episodes of this shit. And I'm like, why are you watching it? She goes, all my friends are watching it and we're all talking about how terrible it is. Um, and so that is that is lockdown in in a nutshell. I think it's kind of massive escapism. I um, I can't tell you anything about the plot at all, but I would like to put pick up on the point that um, you're going. There's this black dupe guy who seems to be have loads of money, live at Cliveden, and is shagging everybody, and he doesn't mention slavery once. Neither would I. 
Yeah. <laughs> 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 one moment where he's walking around the village and he's surrounded by all these peasants and he kind of looks around and she has to explain to him, like, these people live here. I just... Tim, oh, let me tell you, he, he knows. He knows that he's just not going to say anything that stops what is happening, happening. He <laughs> likes his big house. He's learnt to breathe through his ears and everything's going well. He's, there's no way that, that brother is going to, like, I'm serious. If people yeah, had lives and people went out of their houses, no one would be watching this shit. It's like Fall America, where there's the black guy in all the white clothes and the white car with the white hats, and he's just like, that's me. He's, yeah. he's, a guy. <laughs> he's like Snoop Dogg, but in 1804, basically. Brilliant. Um, uh, one thing I would say about this, the bits that I have seen, I, it's not innovative, but I always do like it when it happens. Why not use a contemporary soundtrack for some bits and pieces? And I think the soundtrack on this, the bits that I've seen, some of it's been quite good. And I did download a couple of songs that when I walked in that I heard from it. And I thought, that's this is the thing. If you've done eight hours of that and you've spent hundreds of millions because that's what it costs to make this and all anyone is talking about the fact that you did some nifty string arrangements of some contemporary music and that the guy is black then you've missed it really haven't you you've missed the you know what you know why it is a kind of slightly missed the the thing just to be serious for a second why it's slightly there's no reason why you can't have a mills and boone bit of escapism with as you say a colorblind cast Mm -hmm. and then maybe teach a few people who wouldn't watch this stuff normally a little bit about history so that when they leave it, they leave maybe with, um, they've, they've accidentally learnt something. Do you know what I mean? Just for once, we don't have to have Love Island on and we yeah. can feed this to people who want to see it and they can go away afterwards and go, did you, did you know that there was a William Wilberforce was against slavery? Fuck, where did that come from? I don't normally talk like this. Yeah. <laughs> so that could have been a good thing. And so it sort of feels like a missed opportunity in that sense. Um, yeah, it's just vilely shallow. And just the portrayal of women is insulting. And I'm not, I'm not a bra-burning feminist. I'm not, I, and I'm not woke, but this just offended me in so many ways. <laughs> Can I can I just say though that I think Adoja Ando, who was in Casualty for all those years as Lady Danbury, she's actually really good. She's probably the only reason worth watching. She's a great actress, and she's the Ginger Girl. I liked the Ginger Girl, but yeah, I just found it hilarious that you want to turn the whole world on its head, yet the fat girl is the one that no one will ever love. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, Shonda. Apparently, the guy you thought you could have taken one for the team there. Apparently, the guy that plays the Duke is now top of the bidding for betting for Bond. Yeah, I, I, I saw on a Daily Mail alert the other day. Yeah, he's going to walk into several roles that would have been earmarked for Chad Bozeman, I would think. Yeah, cock first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Do you know what? We are at like four hours, people. Four hours. So while the judges quickly work out their top three. I'm not, you lot have been hilariously um, fun going around the room uh, talking about your favourite porno alternative film titles for some of the things that we've been talking about today. So I'm going to go around and get your favourite porno version because you've all contributed. Let's go to the smuttiest person in the room first. Kit, what's yours? Um, I'm going to go for one that actually, uh, it, what we mentioned it, but it isn't on the list. I'm going to go for Shaving Ryan's Privates which is an all-time classic. Excellent. John, you must have come up with a good one. Uh, knobs and Generals. 
Yeah. <laughs> but but in, in in typical format, I screwed up the British slang and misspelled it. So I but, love that uh, thank you. Uh, shout out to Kit for correcting how uh, knob in this sense is is spelled. I like I to get my knob straight. Roman Polanski as well, which is quite amusing. <laughs> Matt, what about you? I struggled with this one. The best I could come up with was doing the other building girl. <laughs> Simple yet effective. Charlie? I didn't get the assignment. Um, can I say <laughs> deep throat impact? Thank you. Deep throat impact. <laughs> Clive, yours was... Okay, well, I, I, I went for a few just to kind of try and get as much coverage as possible. Pearl's ardour, united passions, blattered splatter, or finally, girth of a nation. Oh, God, that's not porn. That's Victorian erotic fiction. That's, that's what Beth, Clive Any porno? <laughs> Beth? Oh, mate, um, I, I'm not very good with this kind of thing. Um, the best I could come up with was Shakespeare in Heat. That was about the best I could come up with. It's a bit shit, though. <laughs> no, wait, Chris? I'm usually really good at this sort of thing, but my brain is complete. I'm trying to think of some kind of Titanic porno, and I just can't think of anything other than the joke about um, going down on Kate Wins slit with a thousand seamen. But I can't. <laughs> no, I can't think of anything. Storman. Uh, I mean, I, I too am not great at this. Surprisingly, uh, <laughs> despite being a pervert and a comedian, uh, I don't know. Shakespeare does Dallas. <laughs> okay, James. <laughs> We all know James um, loves I've, porn. <laughs> I've just thought of one, which is is basically the actual title of Bridgerton, but it's Brothelton. Is it? Doesn't make me laugh. No, it's not. <laughs> but right isn't away. it basically just sex in period sort of thing? Nikolai's right away because he doesn't want to play. Or he's <laughs> Marcus. Yeah, I, I had Shakespeare in Heat 3, which is how all great pornos are. You can never find the first two. And then the other Blin girls on girls was, uh, was a good mention. Excellent. All of which would probably Holmes would want to watch before seeing any of these again. Judges. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think we've decided. I think um, we. Firstly, we're not including gods, and we've not picked gods and generals and a birth of a nation. Is that because you find them? Truly repulsive. They're, they're as a truly repulsive. Our favourite films. Andrew and I, we love them. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, we, we, uh, we're not picking them because they're awful. And if we were picking on political uh, reasons, we would we'd pick those. Um, yeah. We disagree on our number three. We're, we're with an agreement for uh, first and second. So, Simon, do you want to go with your third? Okay, so my number three um, is... Uh, Braveheart, mm-hmm. Braveheart, because um, historically it's all over the place and um, the story is all over the place and it's not really that great, um, you know, best director really? No, no. Yeah. Clive, what was your number three? My, my number three was the other Berlin girl. Hey. Okay. And number two? Number two, <laughs> I'm now desperately scrolling through my... Uh, Sorry, bear with me. Simon, can you remember what we agreed for number two? I can remember number one. I thought that I thought that your number three was going to be um, 
Shakespeare in Love. I thought that was your number three. I've messed up. Yeah, my number three is Shakespeare in Love. And number two is The Other Berlin Girl. Uh, Yeah. Unanimous decision. It's easy to get confused. (laughs) And uh, and number one is Caligula. Boom. Look at Clive. Clive rolls out the Cockney accent, this time for a Roman emperor, and wins again. (laughs) Clive's master of theatre. Kudos to Clive for um, watching uh, the director's cut, the extended cut, <laughs> and the other cut that's And the 40 hours of uh, non-simulated sex. <laughs> yeah, and then we wonder why he has a power cut midway through recording. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, thank you so much. We really have been here for four hours now. Next week, <laughs> next week we're going to do uh, Honour to John our yank in the room and actually my mum and Wendy might be coming to play as well from Arizona because we are going to mark the inauguration by hell or high water even if they have to do it in a bunker of Joe Biden by deciding who is America's worst ever president the t word is banned because it's no fun if you get <laughs> anyone advice, you're shit we know that so what we did was ban anyone who was still living so it is going to be a history debate and not just a rant about donald trump uh people's choices are really good so far and i am quite surprised by some of them so it's gonna be really exciting we've had a few bun fights already over who gets to who do who so join us for that uh in the meantime do take care try not to get covid and we will see you then Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. 